Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop your transmission tower of truth, striking down hypocrisy one lie at a time in your lady's corner. My trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, your journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your less burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. What's going on this morning? Oh, you know, huh. Does anybody have any dogs that have a lot of separation anxiety? Her dog is flipping um, out this morning. Raise his hand. <laughs> yeah, her dog is flipping um, out. Yeah, folks. Wow. Um, it was intense. A lot of people met my my dog buddy on the live stream last night on my YouTube. Um, but man, I got I got the call yesterday. I got a text yesterday from yeah. my neighbor that was like, "I think your dog's upset." And I was like, "No, he just has separation anxiety." And then this morning it was like. Oh, God. Yeah, he really does. Yeah, he just um, couldn't let. Yeah. Yeah. yeah couldn't yeah. handle it. He was having a hard go of it. So I and folks, I have tried doggy Xanax. That's like throwing darts at a tank at this point. Um, I don't want to drug him up with Benadryl every day. I've tried the treats. <laughs> I've was, tried the treats. Yeah. You're like, have you tried Benadryl? I'm like, I can't drug my dog every day. Give him a hot toddy, basically. Like, well, and the thing is, is too, is that he gets Benny. so like crazy in the morning oh, and then like. And then he calms down. And uh-huh. so I have it on the pet cube where I'm literally sitting here talking. The microphone is is also broadcasting to my apartment. And I think it's just so that he hears me talk. I don't know. It but seemed to help. It I mean, because it did seem to calm down when we started talking. Yeah. But when he heard Jamal's voice, he was like, oh, yeah, okay. There's a, God? There's a radically masculine voice. <laughs> and it is calming me down as a dog. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> more was like, nah, it's a little voice of an angel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to give a shout out to Eric Adams. Eric Adams, who's um, New York mayor, burning the oh. candle at both ends. Oh, I thought he shouted out fault lights. <laughs> no, 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 no. I am giving him a shout out. Eric Adams, and I don't mean this in a positive. I mean this in a grotesquely negative way. Okay. Eric Adams was at a club on Monday night jamming it up. And he was the mayor just kind of Was he with Will there. Smith after the Academy Awards? Maybe. You would, <laughs> you, maybe. Who knows? Eric Adams seems to be everywhere in New York just kind of hanging out. The mayor is at a club on a Monday night and it's like the music is going and everything else. He has a woman dancing beside him and she's like just going and she's just feeling the music and Adam is like just doing a little two-step, a little two-step, a little two-step. Now, while he's doing the two-step, the cops are out there bashing the heads of homeless and getting rid of their encampments. And Eric Adams, up early Tuesday morning, overseeing that particular thing. And it's like, whoa, all of that is going on on a Monday night? Eric Adams wow. didn't have anything better to do. And then he basically says, these encampments can't happen. This is unacceptable. And my thing is, yes, it is completely unacceptable for a human being to be living on a street in a city like New York that has the resources to ensure that those people are not living on the city. But instead, kick them down the street. Wow. Kick them down the street. Great. Wow. Oh, by the way, how much are we sending to Ukraine? How much are we sending to Ukraine? $100 billion. Yeah. Um, while I'm reading these headlines, see, I'm sorry. If the yeah, live, I the headline. see if the live stream is coming up. I'm not seeing it here. And I know folks are going to be like, oh, okay. we're having some trouble. Yeah, we're having folks. a little bit of trouble. We're having some troubles, folks. So. Troubles happen, man. 
Troubles Things happen. happen. You know, your dog doesn't shut up. <laughs> Eric Adams can't do the two-step. He's got a oh, lot actually, of problems. I don't want to take anything away from him. Yeah. He got the two-step. You know, it was it was minor. Like, he's a mayor, right? So he can't go. He can't break it. He yeah. can't pop and lock. He may pop and lock at home, but he can't pop and lock on stage like that. Yeah. But Well, yeah. You kick we'll out those homeless, happens, though. Folks. He can do that. But we've got a lot of um, great guests coming up. We are going to be talking China. We're going to be talking these Ukraine peace talks. We're going to be talking about Slapgate. (laughs) Folks, I am knee deep into this stuff. I told Jamar, he's like, what's your monologue on today? I was like, Slapgate. And he's like, again? I I didn't say again. No, no. I I kid, I kid. But but I was like, dude, I am knee deep into this stuff. Um, And I'm going to tell you of what's going around, what's going around the Washington Monument here and everywhere else. And, um, yeah, we're going to get into it at um, 8.15. But starting with your headlines, your COVID headlines. First, it's been a while. Many Americans have taken significant steps back from once routine coronavirus precautions, with less than half now saying they regularly wear face masks, avoid crowds, and skip non-essential travel. An AP poll found 44% say they often or always wear a face mask around people outside of their homes, down from 65% in January when infections of the highly contagious Omicron variant were soaring. And just 40% say they're largely avoiding non-essential travel compared to 60% in January. In your national news, U.S. officials are preparing for the possibility of thousands of more migrants per day attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border illegally, a pace that should shatter last year's record breaking levels as the Biden administration weighs lifting a COVID era order under currently blocking most asylum seekers. As of mid-March, around 5,000 illegal aliens were arriving per day on average at the Department of Homeland Security is bracing for as many as 18,000 a day. Under Title 42, a COVID-19 health order enacted in March 2020, U.S. border agents can expel migrants to Mexico within hours or rapidly send them to other countries without the opportunity to seek asylum in the United States. Implemented by former President Trump, President Joe Biden has so far kept the order in place. President Joe Biden Tuesday signed into law the first federal legislation to make lynching a hate crime addressing a history of racist killings in the United States after the Senate passed the bill earlier this month. The law is named for Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was brutally murdered in Mississippi back in 1955. The bill makes it possible to prosecute as lynching any conspiracy to commit a crime that results in death or serious bodily injury. All for that, just not right now. (laughs) Right, right. It just seems so out of place. Yeah. Yeah, it seems so out of place. Yeah. In your international news, Ukraine and its Western allies dismissed a Russian military pullback from near Kiev as a ploy to refit troops after heavy losses, even as invading forces bombarded cities elsewhere and press on with the obliteration of besieged Mariupol. Russia said it would curtail operations near Kiev and the northern city of Chernyiv to increase mutual trust for peace talks. Ukrainian presidential advisor Oleski, not going to say that name, The presidential advisor said Moscow was shifting some forces from northern Ukraine to the east, where it was trying to encircle the main Ukrainian force there. He said some Russians would stay near Kiev to tie Ukrainian forces down. The UN Refugee Agency said more than 4 million refugees have now fled Ukraine since Russia launched its war in the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Aid workers say the numbers have eased in recent days as many people await developments in the war 
An estimated 6.5 million people have also been displaced from their homes within the country. And a gunman killed at least five people when he opened fire on a busy street in Israel on Tuesday before he was taken out by cops, reports say. The suspected terrorist shooting in B'nai Brak, an ultra-Orthodox suburb of Tel Aviv, comes after two other attacks by Arab citizens that have sparked fear of ongoing violence ahead of the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan on Saturday. The shooter, identified by Israeli media as a 27-year-old Palestinian man from the occupied West Bank, was fatally shot by cops after he randomly fired at people on balconies and passing on the street, according to witnesses. Your holidays. It is National Pencil Day, Manatee Appreciation Day, and in Trinidad and Tobago, it's Spiritual Baptism Liberation Day. Those are your headlines for Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. Um, so, yeah. Um, I don't know if you... Do you know the rapper Loki? I was I was asked this about in my in my chat last night, and then when I was watching my new favorite um, YouTubers, Beauty and the Boomer. If you guys ever want, if you guys ever want like a cool like SNL take on all that's going on in the world right now, especially with Ukraine and Russia, Beauty and the Boomer is super fun. Yeah, they have like these Wednesday shorts, uh, or I'm sorry, Tuesday shorts on Tuesday nights, and then they have their show Saturday night in place of like Saturday Night Live. And they brought this up last night, where it's this British rapper who did a song about Palestine. Okay. And it was saying like, you know, free Palestine and, um, you know, pray for Gaza. Spotify now wants to take this one specific song, or I'm sorry, an Israeli group is, is, is protesting and asking Spotify to take this one specific song down. Wow. Yeah. Just because it's against, I mean, for Palestine. For Palestine. That's yeah. so weird. I mean, they act, you know, Facebook, Twitter, these organizations act as if support for Palestine is inherently against Israel. Meaning like the very fact that I say, hey, I don't like the fact that you're keeping those people in cages like that. And I don't fa- like the fact that you have this kind of open air ghetto. Oh, you're just, you know, hating on Jews. No, actually, I'm criticizing a state, a state, an apartheid state. There's a difference in those things. There's a difference between a religion versus an actual state. And yeah, you can criticize both. But in this very specific situation, let's be clear. Um, yeah, they act as if, hey, I support Palestine. Oh, so you're against Israel. It's like, it's almost like, and look, on some level, the very framing of that gives you this kind of context in regards to how they look at the issue. I mean, you know, this is somewhat of a reflection on them on some level. But yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, Germany even went as far recently. This article came out. There's some kind of Z symbol. And the Z symbol represents somehow... Something it's, supporting it Russia. the Russians, right. basically. And, so and, Germany, and a lot of it, they said that they put it on their tanks yes. to, so you could recognize it was a Russian tank and not a Ukrainian tank. Well, people are using it as a symbol for, you know, support for Russia. Well, Germany right. is saying they potentially could prosecute people for doing that. That stuff is astonishing. Like, Did the you know that it's that illegal in Germany to name your baby Hitler? <laughs> I'm sorry, not Hitler, uh, Adolf. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was illegal for a while to name your baby. I think it was like Adolf and really? Hitler. Yeah. I could... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I can kind of see that. Because that's what needs fixing right now. Yeah. I can see that. I can mm-hmm. kind of see that. I can kind of see that. Yeah, man. It's it's very strange. And strange, maybe not the word for it, but this quote-unquote democracy has gone off the rails. And whether that's here, whether that's Europe, 
this idea of this kind of liberal democracy where you have debate and conversation and you have all of these ideas that are introduced and people kind of figure out where they want. That's over with. Nice experiment. Played that game. We're done with that. We have the technological tools now to suppress opinion and speech, at least to the level that it can bubble up in regards to the various platforms. And that's what it seems like they're doing. For better or for worse, it seems like they've gotten to the point of just saying, yeah, we're beyond that. There's certain speech we just don't like, and we don't like it to the degree where we don't even need to hear it. And so we will use Twitter, we will use Facebook, we will use Google. I mean, even during the election for Hillary Clinton, it's like the search results for DuckDuckGo were different than the search results from Google, dramatically so. And so if you're putting in something, let's say, to see Hillary Clinton emails in Google, you get some of anything. DuckDuckGo, you get Hillary Clinton's emails. Meaning Google was like, oh, we didn't change any results or anything else. Nonsense. I guess my point is all of these tech companies have gotten to the point where they now have this capability of basically silencing speech because that's kind of where all of us kind of aggregate. And whether that's supporting Palestinians, whether that's giving an example or an explanation contextual of what is taking place in Ukraine, all of that stuff is against geopolitical interests and as such, persona non grata. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah. It's a, it's a dark place that we're going to on this stuff. I mean, think of, like, what would have happened if this was during the civil rights era, where the thought is, okay, we don't like the fact that X can talk that way. We don't like the fact that Martin Luther King can talk that way. We're not going to give these guys um, a platform, per se. And to be fair, Twitter, Facebook, none of that stuff existed anyway. Uh-huh. And so you can make an argument that they would still be doing their speeches and et cetera, et cetera. But it just seems like they've taken a very specific tack in just saying, yeah. We are fine with this idea of eliminating certain speech. We're going to call it propaganda. We're going to say you're making stuff up, et cetera, et cetera. We're not even going to deal with it. That's dark. Uh-huh. That is very dark. That's very, grim. very dark. Yes. Um, we're in, we're in, we're, we're, we're now trying to, you know, shut down the Russian government. Now we're trying to shoot down parts of the alphabet. And then now Palestine, because, you know, everything that's been going on there, pff, look the other way. Yeah. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's ridiculous. But let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Brian Zach, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Radio Sputnik. You're listening to Fault Lines. Myself, Aaron Fronsek, is sitting alongside my co-host, Jamarl Thomas. And Jamarl, there's a lot going on today, but I know you've got a fault. So what is it? My fault. My fault. And we can call it that. In fact, I'm not even going to call it my fault. I'm going to call it their fault. And what I'm talking about is mainstream media and the United States and the way that they are talking about the peace talks. And let's say the outcome of those peace talks yesterday. I sat at the doctor's office yesterday watching mainstream media. It's not something I tend to do because, you it's know. It's not something it, you want to do in a doctor's yeah, yeah. office. It's, well, like, under normal circumstances. Well, honestly, for me, it's like I turn to the next person is like, these people are idiots. And what they're saying is nonsense. Yeah, I just see looking over like. Oh. Yeah, eventually you see their eyes glaze over as I'm getting really animated about it. Look, there's very little separation between who I am here versus who I am outside. And so those people basically have to take it. And as far as specific situation, no, there were peace talks. Those peace talks were taking place in um, Istanbul, Turkey, and there were movement, or there was movement in those peace talks. Now, the U.S. interprets that differently, but they interpret it differently because their view of the entirety of this has just been utterly skewed. 
And from the standpoint of mainstream media, the way they basically been reporting it was based on what the government was saying, and they've been backing their government. Reality, be damned. They didn't care. So just to get into the peace talks and just what came out of it, Kiev, Zelensky's government, proposed, gave a proposal. Russia is going to take that proposal back um, to Putin. And the idea being, if they can get preliminary deal signed or agreed upon, Putin and Zelensky will meet. That's one of them. And that's a concession that wasn't necessarily there before. And I'll just read it. Ukraine's proposals include the country's neutral and non-nuclear status, ensured by international guarantees and non-use of force against Crimea and certain areas of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. He noted that the sides have diverging opinions or positions on Donbass borders. That said, Russia does not oppose Ukraine's aspiration to join the European Union. Now, is that a concession? I don't particularly know. Now, Russia did say that they weren't going to go after Kiev, and I think there was one other city that they said they weren't going to pull back from. But this is not a ceasefire. It doesn't necessarily stop the war. Now, how did Western media report this? Now, Western media basically said that Russia wanted to take those regions. Russia just couldn't take those regions. They wanted to take those cities. They just couldn't do it. They got so many people killed, meaning from their own side, that they basically had to pull back and reshuffle. This is so ludicrous. And honest to God, makes zero sense in the context of what I just told you. Zelensky, if you remember, up to this point, was very adamant about the, um, the integrity, uh, territorial integrity of Ukraine. Now Zelensky has put these things up on the table. Why? Because they are losing. It is true that Ukraine, working with the United States and European Union, are winning this kind of war against reality. War against good sense. War against pragmatism. Russia just has to settle for basically winning the war. What did I tell you for the last several weeks? That the predominance of the war is taking place in the East. In the East, not the West. The U.S. continuously focused on Kiev and some of these cities that are in the East. Wherein I kept making the point, that is not where the majority of the conflict lies. At the end of the day, what were Putin's objectives? I listened to multiple um, of Putin's speeches yesterday because I wanted to make sure that there wasn't this kind of moving of the goalposts. There was no moving of the goalposts. He was very clear. We need to protect the integrity, um, territory integrity of Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. We're going to protect that group. And of course, in order to do that, the operation had to basically sever those regions, let's say from Ukraine, militarily. And from the same point of Maripol, which is about to fall, to create a land bridge to Crimea. Those were the objectives, right? I mean, how do you secure that area? How do you ensure that the Crimea remains Russian hands, et cetera, et cetera? These are gains that are taking place. What was the other thing? Destroy the Ukrainian military to take the knife from Russia's throat. The majority of the Ukrainian military is in the East, not the West, despite what they're showing you on television. And the fact that it's in the East, um, they're basically surrounded losing supplies. They're getting to the point of annihilation. They want to leave while they have the opportunity to leave before they're entirely encircled. Zelensky is not allowing it, which means that that military will basically be destroyed. That's if he continues to keep them there, which is, again, goes back to this point about who is winning versus who is losing. And look, this is not a rah-rah. This is not a moral judgment. This is not even an approval per se. This is just an analysis of what is taking place in the way that the media is reporting it. At the end of the day, if you and I are in a conflict and you start offering me stuff, who, from your standpoint, is most likely to be winning that conflict? 
How many people engage in a war and the side that's winning the war decides to offer up territorial gains? You tell me. How often does that basically take place? Meaning, when I'm looking at this particular conflict and Russia and the military basically says, we have basically accomplished what we were trying to accomplish in the East. And we could start scaling down on some level the military operations. It's because they actually did. They're accomplishing what they wanted to accomplish in the East. In fact, of the matter is the attacks on Kiev or the attacks on some of the other cities in really specific sense can be considered maneuvers that can draw the military away from the actual area of conflict. Meaning, if you want to keep Ukrainian troops from the eastern region interfering with the encircled troops, then you have attacks on cities that basically draw and keep and pin the Ukrainian soldiers down. They were very clear early on. You could go back and look to February. The objective was not to take cities. The objective was not to kill civilians. The objective was not to destroy infrastructure. None of that was the objective. So from the media standpoint of, oh, so many of their troops are going to kill. Don't buy it in the least. Oh, all of this fighting is taking place again. Oh, they just wanted to take Kiev and just couldn't do it. Nonsense. Nonsense. They are misreporting or just flat out lying. Is there any circumstance or situation that you believe that the Western media would give Putin a, hey, he actually accomplished the objective that he set out to accomplish? No, they would not. Have you ever known them to say anything good about Putin? Again, no, they would not. Do you believe that the State Department would come out and say, hey, um, they're accomplishing their objective? No, they're not going to do that. They haven't done that up to this point. They haven't reported honestly up to this point. They haven't even reported honestly the events that led up to this point. They haven't even reported honestly that for eight years, the Ukrainian government has been killing other ethnic Russian Ukrainians. They don't even own up to the security issues that Russia has with a hostile military organization getting closer and closer to its borders, culminating in the overthrow of Yanukovych the democratically elected president of Ukraine, elected by the East and the West in 2014, meaning removed in 2014. They don't even call that a coup. They call that a revolution of dignity, a revolution of dignity. When Donald Trump tried to throw over the government, they didn't look at that as a revolution of dignity. They looked at it as a failed attempted coup. They are warped in the way that they look at this. And so from the standpoint of the military conflict that's going on, they are also warped in their framing. The fact of the matter is, this conflict is moving forward. And the peace talks can now, on some level, begin in earnest, especially since Russia has gotten the military advantage that it basically wanted. Meaning, we're going to fight until we get to the point where militarily the events on the ground are settled. And they're settled when we get hold of Maripol, when we take and sever the Donbass, when we can ensure the land bridge to Crimea, and we can ensure that all of this. Is militarily in our hands. Then we can talk. Then we can have those peace talks. So when they're here and they give, okay, we're, we're going to pull back a little bit on Kiev. They were never trying to take Kiev in the first place. It's a token gesture at best. From the standpoint of Zelensky offering up Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, all of these things were non-starters before. Now they seem to be on the table. There's another element to this, though, that's a little weird, and it's a no-fly zone. Ukraine was asking for security guarantees, and they were basically saying that the other countries that are part of the world can be part of those security guarantees. And part of that was a no-fly zone, which just seems insane uh, for Russia to accept that premise. But we'll see. I would say this. 
the farther this conflict goes and the longer Zelensky allows his people to continue to get killed and his military to basically be smashed, the agreements and the deals that will be made at the bargaining table will get that much more steep. Meaning, the longer this goes, the more Russia will want because their military advantage will go that much more and their demands escalate further. There's also this issue of sanctions. There's also this issue of an economic war that is basically taking place. The U.S. has decided to fight to the last dead Ukrainian. They've, we've also decided to fight to the last freezing, starving, and broke European because they are going to take the predominance of the hit from the standpoint of the economic war. At the end of the day, this is your world, and these are your events. And no, your media is not giving you reality. So, so yeah, so I am in this mindset apoplectic watching it for some reason. Because I feel like if you were going to give this information to people and if you were going to give them this view of the war, and mind you, this is coming from a country that was instrumental in knocking over Ukraine. And so the fact that we were instrumental in knocking over Ukraine, are we really going to give this kind of honest take and are we going to be an honest broker in regards to how we're doing it? And the U.S. up to this point doesn't necessarily seem willing to negotiate. They keep giving them weapons. They keep giving them money, knowing that it is a foregone conclusion, which means you are using this as a proxy war against the Russians to try to bleed them white, just like in Afghanistan, or for that matter, just like the U.S. and Vietnam. And Zelensky, dirtbag that he is, allowed, <laughs> dirt bag. allowed him to do it. I don't know what else to call him. I have another choice, few choice words. He is getting people killed. He is getting his military smashed. No, you need to sign the petition The petition to have him win the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, is that what I need to do? Yeah. Would that, would that basically stop him from getting involved in a war? <sighs> Jamal. Zelensky was infinitely responsible in addition to the U.S. Do you not understand he could not make the Academy Awards because he is in a war right now? Sean Penn was going to give up his Academy Awards. So this man could come out there and tell everybody, look, do you want to be involved in World War III? You need to sign up now. I see you out there, lady, on your laptop. I see you guy walking your dog. You can make the difference. You can help Ukraine. Insane for the Ukraine. Put a bullet in Putin's brain. <laughs> Did you see Alex Stein 99, by the way? He's my new obsession. No, I haven't He's seen the one, He Stein? went in front of a city council, okay? And, and I'll have to see if I can get the clip, but he went in front of a city council dressed up in army fatigues and was like, hello, I'm Colonel like Mac McGregor or whatever. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, and we're here to sign you up for World War III. He's like, you don't understand. And then he starts playing like this, this like instrumental music behind him. And he's like, you don't understand. R Putin is at our back door. He is knocking on our door. And are you going to let him get away with this? No, you need to fight. One of you, one of you council members can make a difference. <laughs> and then he's like, are you going to sign up lady like, on the laptop? Suit up. He's like, are suit you going to sign up? Are you going to sign up? And he's like, we need to fight. He goes, you don't have to have experience. Actually, we don't want you to have experience. <laughs> We're going to teach you everything you need to know. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. And he trolls the crap out of this city council. And then he goes to another city council in Plano, Texas. Because he's, he's like, he's like, I'm here in Richardson, Texas. You need to sign up. And then he's, he's like, forget our 
southern border. We've got Putin knocking on our other border. <laughs> right. 51st state. So then Ukraine. he goes to Plano and he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, I've been really in the fields. He's like, and I'm, I, I wrote this song and I want everybody to, you know, kind of get inspired to sign up. And then that's where he's like, insane for the Ukraine. Put a bullet in Putin's brain. And he's like, does this whole thing. Well, that's what Biden oh, wants. That's God. clearly what Biden wants. But yeah. That is exactly what Biden wants. And, I mean, and then he holds speech. up a picture of Zelensky and he's like, are you going to be here to help Vladimir Zelensky? <laughs> you need to help. This man is a hero. He will go down in the history books as a hero. And you have the choice. You can either sit on the sidelines or you can go out there and defend your country. And I mean, it is, folks. That's hilarious. I was, I was inspired. <laughs> That's hilarious. I was inspired. Because honestly, it does feel like wartime, right? I mean, you mentioned it yesterday. You was like, we're at war. And I was like, no, we're not at war, uh-huh. which is the weirdest aspect of that. The media, Eugene Debs got put in prison in the United States when he was talking against the war, the First World War, if I'm not mistaken. Socialists ran for president, actually. And again, during wars, oftentimes they curtail the information that basically coming out. Germany was putting people in prison for like 10 years. Goebbels wanted even longer. Uh-huh. If anybody like listened to a radio source coming from the BBC or something like that. Um, information gets curtailed. It gets limited in times of war. What is this? Why are we doing this for Ukraine? And why on earth do they... Uh, if the media reported this honestly and explained to the American public how much more they're paying for, the, for Jin Psaki and Joe Biden's values... Mm-hmm. They would lose their minds. It's like, hey, are you okay with paying higher inflation and higher for food? And oh, more famine? And oh, higher gas prices? And oh, higher prices for your car, for your electronics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As Roger Stone said, gas prices are going higher than Hunter Biden. Yep. (laughs) Difficult thing to do. Herculean tasks to go higher. That is like 10 crack pipes, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Just back to back to back. Superhuman Uh tolerance under Biden. Uh Um, Let's let's do this. (laughs) It's always Uh good to to, to end on a Hunter Biden joke. Exactly. Um, Let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. We are working on getting our live stream up and going. We see you. We hear you. We're working on it. We see you. We see you. Are you going to sign up for World War III? <laughs> right. You can sign up on our fault lines, brumble.com slash fault lines channel. Zelensky needs you. We are going to get it, though. I promise. One man makes a difference. Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franza, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share by audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. But let's get to our next guest. As I mentioned in the monologue, the Western media is reporting, basically Russia's reporting that they've, let's do it this way. Russia's reporting that they've basically accomplished many of the objectives they set out to do. And based on my assessment, Donetsk People's Republic, Luhansk, basically separation of the Donbass, taking Maripol, creating a land bitch to Crimea. These were key objectives, and these key objectives apparently are on their way to being accomplished. During the peace talks, there was, again, a little bit of movement with Ukraine providing a proposal. 
And Russia's saying they'll take it to Putin. And within the context of that proposal, potentially a meeting between Putin and Zelensky. But understand, that meeting is taking place after things are solved militarily on the ground. To have a conversation about this and other issues, we're joined with Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. Mark, always love to have you, my man. How you doing this morning? What's going on, Pierogi King? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Jamar Fran, thanks for having me. Always an honor and uh, a, a uh, taste affair to be on. At least a sweatshirt that says Pierogi King. Yeah, yeah, right. We, we, we can send him a t-shirt. We talked to the Pierogi Queen yesterday, my mother. For, for our, our boomer chat. And then we have me, the pierogi princess, and then you can be our pierogi queen, or not queen, king. Yeah, king, king, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're sending you the muscle shirt. <laughs> well, every morning when I pick her up, I bow. As, long, like, as just... long as it's a a, a, pierogi, a potato pierogi, yes, you will bow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bow every morning. It's like, princess. <laughs> I think he even said this, like, hey, princess, wake up. Um, but Mark, um, it, d- do you disagree with anything that I said in that assessment? Let's start there. Because the Western media is reporting this in a very warped way to me. They're basically saying, well, they wanted to take Kiev. They wanted to take these cities. They just couldn't do it. Russia lost 50,000 people, et cetera, et cetera. And as I've been reporting, this is nonsense. Most of the conflict is taking place in the east with the surrounding of the Ukrainian military. What's going on, Mark? Okay, so um, Russia announced yesterday uh, that they were going to, uh, they, they announced it in the context of the peace negotiations that they were going to de-escalate in two air conflict areas in Ukraine, around Kiev and around the uh, northern city of Chornikov. And now, this was Russia taking the opportunity of the peace negotiations to announce a military plan to basically um, not conduct further advances in the area and reposition some units to the east of the country as if it's some type of goodwill concession. Symbolic, right. I think it it's symbolic. It is not. <laughs> it is it is it is part of a, of a military plan uh because the for, as far as the Russian military is concerned uh the they are talking about the conflict in stages. And the first stage was the large-scale degradation of the Kiev regime's military across the country, uh, some of it on the ground, uh, a lot of it by standoff, uh, cruise missile strikes, airstrikes, and so on, uh, the destruction of Ukraine's uh, air force, uh, for the most part, a uh, at least a substantial destruction of the Kiev regime's air defenses, although in West Ukraine there may be re- more remnants than in the rest of the country. Um, and uh, they have basically announced that that is completed to their satisfaction. Uh, and we don't know a lot because the regime in Kiev, of course, does not estimate their own casualties. It does not estimate their own equipment damage or anything like that. And for the most part, Western uh, open source intelligence, uh, you know, on social media that are, you know, posting uh, pictures of every fallen Russian soldier that they can and and uh, pictures of tanks being towed away by Ukrainian farmers from 10 different angles, often presenting it as 10 different tanks. Um, they do not report 
essentially, you know, a, a, a tiny fraction of of uh, the open source is on Ukrainian uh, equipment destruction uh, and e- Ukrainian casualties. So we really do not know the state of the Ukrainian military because we are relying. Uh, at least in the English speaking world, we don't because we are relying a lot on on, you know, what is uh, on coming from these open source intelligences or directly from uh, the Pentagon assessments, which which is not saying much or even even better Kiev regime's assessments, which include the Snake Island hoax and 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 the ghost of Kiev. So take take all of that for what it's worth. But phase two is this big cauldron. This encircling movement of in East Ukraine, where some uh, forty to eighty thousand of the Kiev regime's, you know, main military forces are. This is the major um, grouping of their military, and by doing a broad frontal attack from the Donbass, they have effectively been kept pinned there, while these encircling movements from the north and the south circled around a lot of cities, you know, uh, tacitly put them under siege to uh, to keep uh, the military forces there pinned down as well. And and now this cauldron is almost complete. And this is this is the main focus of the Russian military now to force these troops, uh, you know, trapped w- without being able to get resupply, reinforcements, ammunition, food, fuel, everything running really low and uh, either force them to surrender or if they won't. Uh, eliminate them and then return to Kiev and say, okay, what you going to do now? <laughs> and, uh, you know, hopefully re-enter negotiations uh, from a stronger position uh, to to force uh, the U.S. backed in regime in Kiev to, to accept Russia's demands or uh, to continue uh, the operation with the majority of the Ukrainian military in the east no longer being an issue. Now, we just had some breaking news. Um, we had uh, Russia just announced it will not demand immediate switch to gas payments in rubles. This is coming from the Kremlin. So Russia saves the day for Germany then? Um, what do you think about this developing news right now? Yeah, I, I think this has uh, got to be a case of the Kremlin blinking. Uh, because, because, um, for whatever reason, because, uh, you know, Europe has completely stonewalled and, uh, the fact that Russia is not just shutting the gas off tomorrow, uh, will be viewed as a, a victory, uh, you know, by Europe standing together and refusing to pay in rubles. Instead, they will continue, uh, paying in euros, which Russia can't really spend. So essentially worthless currency because of yeah, but what Western would they do? I mean, why would I consider Putin and Moscow to be competent actors that are planning this stuff out on some level? Meaning, almost like a like a I don't want to minimize it, but almost like a chess game on some level. Um, to say we're going to take it in rubles is very strong. It's a pretty strong, boisterous thing, knowing that Europe needs oil. I'm guess it 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 boosted the Russian ruble that it nearly recovered all of its losses since the beginning of, of the Western sanctions. So why put that out there and then take that back like that? Okay, so, I, well, first of all, the, the unanimity of Europe in saying we're not going to do that 
um, presented Russia with two options. One, they would be shutting down the gas. And I, th- I think there's two concerns for the Kremlin here, neither of which I agree with. I, th- I think it should have been cut off or, or should be cut off, uh, you know, uh, on the 1st of April, haha, um, you know, uh, when the, when when uh, past the deadline. But obviously the Kremlin uh, is is blinking and, and backing down a bit on this and saying, well, it doesn't happen have to happen immediately, which means it will then never happen. Um, I, at least that's what the Europeans will think. Um, the two concerns are, one, Russia at, and the Soviet Union before that has always been a reliable supplier of energy to Europe, and they take that much more seriously than Europe takes weaponizing their economies against Russia. Uh, and they may be thinking long-term that you, this will uh, spur Europe to seek alternative sources of energy, although I would argue that they're already doing that anyway. And they're very limited in, in, in capacity in that regard. The other concern, of course, is that the, the Kremlin still manage, will lose up to 800 million euros a day for, for every day of gas not being pumped to Europe. Now, uh, there's very limited use of that euros right now. I assume that um, the, the Kremlin, the finance ministry, is finding some way to use those euros to get rid of them, effectively laundering them, you know, under cover of other nations, as if Western sanctions against Russia are legal. They're not, uh, but uh, you know, certainly with their threat of sanctioning countries that dare trade with Russia, this this uh, secondary sanctions. Uh, you know, they they have a, a powerful influence on other countries, so it will be done somewhat covertly. Um, but uh, those are, the, I guess, the two concerns, uh, the, the lost money and the loss of credibility, uh, long term credibility as a reliable supplier of energy. I, I think both of those concerns are moot. Uh, but, you know, I don't make the decisions. The, the, the Kremlin's finance minister. Um, for those, um, we're having some technical difficulties, Mark. So um, as far as our Rumble channel, but right now we're up on my channel. We're working to get on Jamaro's channel on YouTube if you follow me fair and balanced. Um, but we have a question from um, my chat from EOK wondering, could they be undergoing some further discussions in the near future? Or do you think this is going to be another thing where it's, you know, hang on, let's schedule another round of talks and then we're going to have to wait a couple more days. Do you think that they're going to be wanting to get this done pretty quick? I mean, it's been a month and I don't foresee Putin liking the fact that we've, that you know, that they've been there for a month by now. What are you talking, you mean the talks, uh, the peace negotiations? Yeah, the peace negotiations are a joke. Uh, there's no seriousness to this at all yet. Uh, neither side is willing to compromise at all when Russia comes out of the talks and says that the best thing that has happened so far is that the Ukrainians, uh, you know, the Kiev regime actually wrote something down on paper. I mean, that 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 is not an accomplishment. There there are no breakthroughs. Reports that you have seen in the Financial Times or maybe from the Turkish media elsewhere, they, they, there's no reality. Uh, Russia is certainly not willing, uh, you know, to... Uh, back off of their military campaign. This this de-escalation, so-called, around Kiev and Chornogov is just a repositioning of forces. Russia, I mean, we've seen plenty of Western OSINT. Russia is pulling reinforcements, both in terms of military hardware and troops, 
to the Ukrainian border right now, larger than what they went into the country with, according to most reports. This is nowhere near done until the U.S.-backed regime in Kiev accepts Russia's you know, uh, demands as they are. The, the, the peace talks mean nothing. And how could the peace talks mean anything? If you take a look at one of the Kiev regime's negotiators during the first round of talks, the Ukrainian intelligence, according to their own media, shot him dead, executed him, summarily executed him on the street as a traitor. I guess he wanted peace a little too much or something like that. They're not ready for peace on Russia's terms either. They think that they can ride this out throw as many civilians as they can uh, into the path of the Russian military and wait for sanctions to do their work, um, and that the war of attrition will somehow lead to the Russian people overthrowing the Russian president or something like that. There, there, there's no indication from either side that they are serious about peace negotiations. Russia, as they did in Syria, will continue talking to their adversary all throughout a military campaign. And you may eventually, eventually see some types of ceasefires and so on, but almost certainly this will be a type of sequential conflict where that opportunity will be used to reinforce, resupply, consolidate, and then begin again. Do not expect this to end anytime soon in in weeks, in months, probably we had in a years. lot of goofs and gaffes over the weekend um, with the president of the United States, mm-hmm. um, him in Poland saying, when you get in front of those tanks, you're going to see over in Kiev. Um, and it was like, hang on a second, sir. Um, when in the hell did we say we were going to be in Kiev? Then talking about. Yeah. Yeah, he said right. over there. He said and over then, there. Um, over and then and then talking um saying what was the other one? Oh, if they were saying if Russia uses a chemical attack, will we respond? And he said we'll respond in kind. And then um National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, like immediately came back and was like, "Whoa, no 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 no. No, no, we're not going to do a chemical attack." So, what is the I guess uh, the pulse on what's going on in Russia. Do they look at Biden as a complete incoherent joke or how do they feel about him? Yeah, I, 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 I well, uh, I mean, there's a, 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 you know, I would say that there's a difference opinion between the way the Russian media treats him, which in many ways is, is the way that the U S media treats uh, Putin as a caricature right, as a laughable figure, as some ancient septuagenarian who is senile and uh, uh, not completely different from the way that, that the Fox News media treats <laughs> Joe Biden, uh, you know, to be fair. Um, but I think that there's a different assessment in the Kremlin. Uh, Joe Biden is a, you know, he's been around uh, on the foreign policy scene for, for decades in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. They're well aware of him. They regard him as a creature of the bipartisan U.S. Uh, hegemonic establishment, um, and they do not not take him seriously. I, I think there's a very different assessment between what what the military says and the, and you know these gaffes and his statements. You know the Kremlin will be looking for double blinds 
you know, it, it, he, he says that and then they walk it back, but that's probably really a threat rather than, oh, that's just the old gaff machine sticking his foot in his mouth again. I don't think the Kremlin takes that at all, uh, like it, that at all. I think the Kremlin takes Joe, take Biden Joe Biden deadly, deadly serious. And I, you know, I think I took him deadly serious because to me, this is a culmination of policy that basically have taken place over the last several decades. I mean, if, if like, what is the point of NATO expansion? If it's not to overthrow the Russian government, what's the point of it? I mean, they basically went all the way up to the borders. They were trying to get a dominant military position with the thought that if anything ever pops off, they will already be fait accompli. We're in such a dominant encircled military position that you guys basically can't do anything to you know, push back against our will. Not just military. I mean, the idea, you know, the way Western geopolitical thinkers, strategists have described it as the pressure cooker. You, sur- su- you surround an independent country, uh, you know, uh, with a foreign policy not aligned the U.S. You do everything you can by hook or crook, spend billions of dollars to make sure that all of the countries surrounding them, you promote uh, by whatever means uh, governments that are hostile to the government that you are targeting. You make sure that they are surrounded so that not just militarily, but politically and economically, they are in the pressure cooker, surrounded by hostile powers. And you you, you flip and you flip and you flip again if you have to until you've created that effect. And, you know, we Russia has seen that repeatedly on its borders uh, for the last few decades. And to be fair, the CIA you know, and and its offshoots like the you know the so-called National Endowment for Democracy, uh, the uh, you know the other uh, gongos of of U.S. regime change and color revolution, they're very good at what they do, and we've even got independent players, uh, according to um, uh, Julian Assange's book Google is not what it seems, that are fully in on this, uh, you know, doing their own color revolution activities against states in the former Soviet Union, like Azerbaijan, uh, because they are, you know, it's just a revolving door between the top management of these companies and the State Um, Department. I want to play this clip. And this is basically the Biden clip. We were looking for it. Um, And I kind of wanted to, I guess I got your take for it. But from the standpoint of, you made the point that Putin basically believes it when Biden comes out and basically says this. Let's play the clip. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. For free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. God bless you all, and may God defend our freedom, and may God protect our troops. I want to ask you something. Let's, we can stop it there. The U.S. media didn't respond to this well. And Europe didn't respond to this well, which I thought was very bizarre. And I thought it was bizarre because everything that Biden has basically said about Putin, the media has gone along with. It's like, oh, he kicks puppies. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He kicks puppies. Here's a picture of him, you know, kicking puppies. It didn't matter what it was. They would go along with it. Even with Biden economy failing, even with his polling failing, Putin did it. It's Putin's fault. The media runs with it. But on this, it was too far. Why is this too far? Like, from your standpoint, like, why do you think this is the issue? Yeah, because, yeah. Yeah. Imagine if someone had said, put to imagine it, flip it. Let's say that that China had said 
that, you know, the uh, current president of the United States cannot be allowed to remain in power. The U.S. would take that as a declaration of war against their country, a, a declaration of war by another nuclear armed power, right? A great power. Uh, that is the way they would take that. And that is the way Russia takes that. The only thing is that Russia has long assumed this. It, sometimes it seems the Kremlin has been a little slow to accept that. But there are enough political and military forces in Russia that have realized that, you know, from the early 2000s, that where this was all going and that they have been in a state of war with the West, at least since 2014, but, but probably, you know, well, the writing was on the well, well before that. And that's the way they regard this. They, they see Joe Biden having said this as, as not a, a gaffe, but kind of more like Trump when they would actually, when Trump would actually sometimes admit to things honestly with his blunt, uh, you know, uh, non-rhetorical way of speaking that, that, you know, is just confirmation of, of, of what it has long been assumed policy is. Uh, and the Europeans uh, backed away from this because despite launching an existential economic war on Russia, uh, they, uh, I guess, hope that the Kremlin doesn't view it as a declaration of war. But I, I hate to tell them it already does. Um, so, yes, I mean, that it is an incredibly destabilizing rhetorical flourish. I mean, Joe Biden obviously thought he was making some type of Kennedy-esque Ich bin ein Berliner speech with this. But I, I mean, I hate to tell anyone, I know it's been said before, but, but you know, <laughs> Joe Biden is no Jack Kennedy. And this is, this is not Berlin in the 1950s, right? Uh, so um, uh, it, it fell flat and, you know, um, it was the wrong note that the Europeans did not want to hear from Biden, not saying it that openly like that. And so not only did his own administration have to walk him back several times, in fact, I mean, it's hard to find something that he said that wasn't walked back. But the Europeans are then like, yeah, we're not quite, you know, we're not with this guy 100% kind of sliding away from him on the podium, kind of like, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're not quite with him on that. So it, it really ruined the whole point of this was to showcase NATO and Western unity uh, right on Ukraine's borders, and it it did the opposite. Uh, and in in that respect, you know, again, it just it 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 certainly did. You know, the the way it's being presented by the Western media is that it played into Kremlin propaganda hands. Well, I mean, it's not Kremlin propaganda to say that the U.S. you know has had a long desire to contain and regime change Russia. That is obvious, and they just openly said it, and and kind of the masks are off. If you hadn't already seen through now, we have um, the you uh, some other news coming th uh, through right now. The UK saying that it is inconceivable to remove sanctions against Russia if a ceasefire is achieved. And then, meanwhile, in Germany, meanwhile in Germany, um, they're advising Germans to use far less gas showing that maybe the situation there is going to hell. But um, yeah, well, the, we're all going down to hell in a handbasket, folks. Uh, lizard hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hell. So, I mean, <laughs> with, with, with all of this going on, and, and again, with Russia now possibly knowing like, hey, even if we 
solve this, we come to a ceasefire, we're still going to have these sanctions. And as you have so eloquently told us that Russia has been dealing with having to live with thousands of of sanctions slapped on them for decades now. I mean, do you think that, that, you know, with the UK saying this, it's, it's like, oh gosh, we're so scared. You know, what do you think? No, it's just another one of these confirmation things. I mean, Russia assumes that any sanctions that are put into effect, particularly, but not only by the United States, will not be reversed any time in the foreseeable future. And and they, there's a history of that. And we, if you take a look during the Cold War, the U.S. leveled the, the uh, Jackson-Vanik Amendment, the Jackson-Vanik sanctions to do with immigration to Israel on the Soviet Union. And long after the Soviet, it wasn't relevant for the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union changed policy, uh, it still continued on well past the, the self-dissolution of the Soviet Union uh, through the 1990s, well up uh, into the 2000s. So at least three decades, uh, you know, it took for those those sanctions to be removed. And and that that is the way Russia is viewing these. They are not viewing these sanctions as something that are ever going to be reversed, but as a new economic fact of life going forward. That's why I, I like to call this the great decoupling, because there is no going back to normal after this. And the Russian government knows that. And so Boris Johnson saying this is no confirm. It's just confirmation. And if there were any voices in the Kremlin, and there are voices that disagree, if there were any voices in the Kremlin saying, "Well, you know, if we, if we, you know, uh, you know, come down in our demands, or you know, uh, end the intervention, uh, you know, then we might get some of these sanctions removed," then it is, is doing the exact opposite. If the intended effect was to, uh, you know. Um, bring peace to Ukraine because now, you know, the, the hawks, if you will, in the Kremlin have full proof saying that there's no reason not to go all out now, not to keep our demands maximalist, not to achieve every military aim because these sanctions are not going to yeah. be changed. Well, even we if do we have stop. some more breaking news, but I won't ask you about it because we're hitting our, our, at the top of the hour, but NASA astronaut Mark Vandehe lands back on earth after spending a record-breaking 355 days in space, Vandehey returned with two Russian cosmonauts. So we'll see. Maybe space can cure this. <laughs> Who knows? But Mark Sloboda, thank you so much. Always a pleasure to have you. Our pierogi king himself. You're listening to Fault Lines. We're live on Jamaro's channel and my channel because Rumble, whatever. You're listening to Fault Lines. We'll be back in two. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens of American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franza. I love that astronaut story. I, I, I am a sucker for space. There, the, What is that movie? I can't think of the exact name of the movie. But there's Armageddon? A, no, it's not Armageddon. It's it's a sucky movie, actually. But Apollo 13? No, it, it has to do with, it's like in the future, 
Uh, but the beginning Could scene. Could you be more specific? I, I can't think of the name of it. I can't think of the name of it. But the opening scene has um, the the space oh space oddity um, as the main song. And you have all of these civilizations, like all of the planet Earth comes together. Like, so basically, you have the space station, you have Russians, you have um, Arabs, you have Americans, etc. And they're shaking hands. And then eventually it gets to a point where Earth is united. And you have the first alien species comes and shakes hand with Independence the Day? representative. No, 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 no. It's, I'll have to think of it. it, it you'll know it when I say it. I just can't think of the name of it. Um, a horrible movie. Again, we're on, on Jamaro's channel and my channel. If you can think of this movie. Yeah, it's the opening scene is mind blowing. The rest Producer of the movie Lee said Xenon, the Disney movie. No, it's not Xenon. It starts with Space Odyssey. I mean, Space Oddity. That's the name of the um, music um, that, that's playing over it. And it's this emancipatory scene, at least for me. It feels like a high watching it where all of these people are going to the space station. And this is Earth coming together. And then you find over the course of years that the space station starts to accept other life. And humanity, together as a planet, meets these aliens and reaches his hands out to shake the hand of an alien for the very first time. And there's this, like, amazing... Um, a Space Odyssey 2001? Space Odyssey is the name of the song. No, 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 it's not Space Odyssey 2001. Space Oddity is the name of the song. But no, I, I, I'll think of it. it it's... When it comes to me, I'll let you know. I can see the actors in my head. I can see the movie in my head. I can even see the opening scene in my head. The president is giving this kind of overlay, this voiceover of the events that are taking place as these people are going to the planet. And basically, Earth got itself Barbarella? together. <laughs> no, it's not Barbarella. Ah, I can't think of the name of it. The movie was horrible. That's why I can't all think I, the all name I can of it. say is that um, one of my favorites, what as as a young as a young Farron, was uh, um, Armageddon. I loved Armageddon and Ben Bruce Affleck. Willis. Bruce Willis. Where, yeah. where it's the... And he's hitting golf clubs off of the uh, oil rig. But I love, I love, and my favorite character, even before I ever got in with the Russians, yeah. was the Russian cosmonaut, where he's been oh, out there it? for like a year and a half, and he's like, hello, welcome <laughs> to Spaceship, don't do this. And then he's like, this is how we fix it in my country, and it's just start banging on the thing, <laughs> and then it works. Yeah. I guess my feeling is space is one of those zones where... Can we leave this nonsense on Earth? It's that. <laughs> where it's like, I don't care the race, the color, the creed, the gender. It's like, I don't care about any of that stuff. Can we leave this nonsense on the planet when we go up? This and, is the Russian space station. Yes. I, I even saw a link where they were like, Russia, it's illegal for Russia to basically take their space station and go home or something. Well, did, like did you see how they were going to have it where... I remember seeing this a couple weeks ago when the invasion first happened and they were like, they're going to abandon right. the, the U.S. astronaut right. and leave him up in space. Yeah. I was like, can you like, calm down? <laughs> right. Calm down. But I'm not going to lie. I love uh, <laughs> Drew Stanko in the chat. Farron as interested in nerd talk as Jamaral is to pierogies based, <laughs> based on facial expressions. <laughs> I just can't think of a movie. When I, when I think of it, it'll, it'll come to me, I swear. But yeah. look, let's get to the headlines. Um, in the news, <laughs> many Americans have taken it. That's going to bug me to no end. That thing is going to be running in the back of my head. What is that movie? What is that movie? Do you need any water on the Russian space station? <laughs> what? I, I'm going to go get water. Do you oh, need water on please. the Russian space like, station? I, I can't do that. Excellent. I'm cold. horrible at accents. Hot or, hot or cold? What are you feeling, Jamaro? Cold, please. Cold. Thank you very much. Always appreciate that. Let's get to the headlines in the news. Many Americans have significant steps back from one routine. I'm sorry. Many Americans have taken significant steps back 
from once routine coronavirus precautions with less than half now saying they work regularly wear masks, avoid crowds, and skip non-essential travel. An AP poll found that 44% say they were often or always wear face masks around people outside their homes, down from 65% in January when the infection of the highly contagious Omicron variant were soaring. And just 40% say they largely avoid non-essential travel compared to 60% in January. Look, same thing here. Um, I've become less likely to wear a mask. If I see other people wearing it, I wear it because I don't necessarily want them to feel any particular way. But all things being equal, I've become far less reactive of that. In national news, U.S. officials are preparing for the possibility of thousands more migrants per day attempting to cross the U.S.-Mexico border illegally, a pace that could shatter last year's record-breaking levels as the Biden administration weighs lifting COVID-era order, currently blocking most asylum seekers. As of mid-March, around 5,000 illegal aliens, ah, in mid-March, around 5,000 people who crossed the border, let's call them that, I don't like this term, illegal aliens, were arrived per day on average, and the Department of Homeland Security is bracing for as many as 18,000 a day. Under Title 42, a COVID-19 health order enacted in March 2020, U.S. border agents can expel migrants to Mexico within hours or rapidly send them to other countries without an opportunity to seek asylum in the United States. Implemented by former President Donald Trump, Joe Biden has so far keeping the order in place. President Joe Biden on Thursday signed a law, the first federal legislation to make lynching a hate crime, addressing a history of racist killings in the United States after the Senate passed the bill earlier this month. The law is named for Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was brutally murdered in Mississippi in 1955. 1955. The bill is possible to prosecute as a lynching and a conspiracy to commit a hate crime that results in death or serious bodily injury. You know what? You know what? Lynching is already against the law. I'll, I'll put a pin in it. I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it. That, that angers me. In international news, Ukraine and its Western allies dismiss a Russian military pullback from near Kiev as a ploy to refit troops after heavy losses, even as invading forces bombard cities elsewhere and press on with the obliteration of besieged Maripol. Russia said it would curtail operations near Kiev and the northern city of Chern- Cherniv um, to increase mutual trust for peace talks. Ukrainian President Advisor Oleski Oretrovic said Moscow was shifting some forces from northern Ukraine to east, where it was finally trying to encircle the main Ukrainian force there. He said some Russians would stay behind near Kiev to tie down Ukrainian forces, which is basically what they were doing, tying down forces while they were um, liberating Donbass. The UN, <laughs> the UN Refugee Agency said that more than 4 million refugees have now fled Ukraine since Russia launched this war in the largest refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. Aid workers say the numbers have eased in recent days as many people await developments in the war. An estimated 6.5 million people have also been displaced from their homes within the country. A gunman killed at least five people when he opened fire on a busy street in Israel on Tuesday before he was taken by cops, reports say. The suspect terrorist shooting in B'nai Brak, an ultra-Orthodox suburb of Tel Aviv, comes after two other attacks by Arab citizens that have sparked fear of ongoing violence ahead of the start of Muslim holy month, Ramadan, on Saturday. The shooter, identified by Israel media, Israeli media as a 27-year-old Palestinian man from occupied West Bank, was fatally shot by cops after he randomly fired at people on balconies and passing on the street, according to witnesses. It's so random. God, life is so, so random. So random. It's just, 
If you're one of those people, you could have been beamed by that bullet. Nicest person on the planet, could have been a baby, could have been anything else. Reality, the universe does not care one iota. There's one other story on this, um, the Ramadan. Yemen and Saudi Arabia have basically had a ceasefire. And the ceasefire is gonna be for the month of Ramadan. Um, there are talks about whether that can be extended further on, who knows? Sometimes you need a bit of peace and a bit of space to let people get familiar with the fact that they enjoy and prefer the peace um, as opposed to getting used to the war. And so we'll see where that goes. It would be great if that conflict stopped. The conflict has been mass killings and most of those deaths have been for kids and most of those deaths have been basically for things like starvation. It's a ghastly war. If you go look at the New York Times, there's an article where Obama basically greenlit that war because he wanted the Saudis to not interfere with this JCPOA deal. He knew it was going to be bloody. He knew it was going to be bad. He didn't believe the Saudis that they were going to be able to do this in a very short period of time. And here we are, what, seven, eight years later with that war still going on, but still starvation. And Joe Biden and the other Democrat, um, other presidents assisting Saudi Arabia in that starvation and killing. It is grotesque. And the idea that Biden is basically still protests. I just leave it at that. In holiday news, we have National Pencil Day. That's always great. Manatee Appreciation Day. Appreciation Day. Well, that should be every day, right? They're, they're awesome animals. Um, and in Trinidad, Tobago, it is Spiritual Baptist Liberation Day. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fall Lines with Thomas and Franzak. I love those big, expansive words. Liberation. I know. He uses Liberation. a lot of big, expansive words in text messages, and I'm like, tomorrow. <laughs> Please stop. You lose me after. I told you. Conspicuous, publicitous, polidium, publibulum. And I'm like, dude, you could just say you're running late. <laughs> I, I, I told you. I, there's very little separation between me and the show. Um, um, hang on. We have, shout out, we had my mom yesterday. We have Mama Thomas in the chat for Jamarl, and she has put out what movie she thinks it is. Oh, what, what does she think? Well, she's got a couple. Um, Space Cowboys. Not Space Cowboys. Galaxy Quest. Not Galaxy Quest. Oh my God. Valerian? That's it. Valerian. Valerian. That's I've, never, it. I've never even heard of that movie. Yeah, in the very beginning of Valerian, you have this scene where the president of Earth is basically... Oh, and Smug Buddha uh, super chatted you. It said Valerian, too. Yeah, it's... That scene is... In, can't, can't get it across. It's like a religious experience. It's like when I went to um, the Vatican and the Pope comes out and all of these people, like, like 20, 30,000 people just all of a sudden just look up. And even though you're not Catholic, not overly religious, none of that stuff, there's still this kind of weird feeling of you being a part of this kind of larger. It felt like that. And it's like all of these people just basically coming from the planet and Earth getting its stuff together. But it was the avatar of it was basically space. It was like, all right, we were able to get our stuff together and we were able to leave this planet as one species, just one. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a um, pretty masturbatory feeling, at least to me anyway. But right here, the Joe Biden thing. Joe Biden on Tuesday signed into law the first federal legislation to make lynching a hate crime addressing a history of racist killings. Look, this was 1955. Lynching is already against the law because that's called murder. It's not that I don't get the difference between, let's say, lynching a white person and a black person because there's a context around the lynching from the standpoint of African-Americans, but it's already against the law. $15 an hour? No, that, that would be better. Um, healthcare, the, that you promised a public option, that would be better. This idea of not having homeless people um, around the country, that would be better. The elimination of marijuana as a crime, that would be better. And by the way, these are things that you basically said you were going to do anyway. Yes, this would be nice if it was gravy on the top, but not as the main dish. And that's kind of where I am with that. Is that like a lot of this stuff is not like, oh, I hate this. It's more so like, 
why is why now? Like all of these other priorities. And you just ignore those other priorities. And I suspect that we say is this is all we can get done. Okay, fair enough. The American public is going to make their judgment on whether or not they want to put you back in because this is all you can get done. I'm going to tell you this. Hate crime bill is not going to keep you from losing the Senate in the House. Just saying. I mean, he's doing this for blacks, right? I mean, basically, this is him throwing a bone to the African-American community. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. I see you guys leaving. Don't leave me. It's that. I mean, it was the same thing. I think a lot of it, though, too, is the the fact that, like, for example, with the Ahmaud Arbery case, you have it where... um, with a hate crime, I mean, it's it's federal. And because mm-hmm. with murder, for example, it could be, you know, maybe like 10 years or something yes. like that. Whereas with a hate crime, it's a federal charge. Yeah, additional federal charges prison, yeah. It's laying down the gauntlet. However, the thing is, is, and I think why they did this is because hate crimes are super, super, super hard to prosecute because you have to show intent. You have to show all of that. Yeah. So, for example, in, um, in uh, Ahmaud Arbery's case, they had all the text messages. They oh, yeah. had all of that to show, like, we're going to go after this N-word. Yeah. I mean, multiple points of racism insanely inspired in their drive to murder this this innocent guy. Um, but yeah. That so, case was disturbing. I mean, like, at the very end, after they murdered the guy, they start taking Snapchats of his dead body. And I kept oh, thinking I to myself. that part. That's sick. Yeah. I mean, fact check me on it, but the, the woman that was with them basically was taking Snapchats. And it's like, you just killed a guy. Like, how are you doing that? Like, it's just, it's, it's, it should be jarring enough to take a person's life and to compound it with that part. And look, um, and they try to act. And the thing is too, is, is they thought they were doing themselves a favor by filming it and what was going on, thinking that that was going to be like their, oh, look, see, we were in the right. Yeah. It was like, that was the actually, thing that convicted you. Yeah. you showed way more guilt than you probably let on, <laughs> you know? That's, so, yeah, they nice were job, Bubba and crew. Yeah, they were warped. Yeah, we could totally run down somebody with a pickup truck, talk about cliche, um, at the very least, and yeah, murder the guy, pull the gun out, murder the guy. I mean, it's astonishing that they thought that was okay. And like you said, videotaping as if we're so in the right and people would just totally get that we're in the right. We're just going to make sure there's a, an objective observer watching us murder this guy. It's, it's grotesque, to put it mildly. So I get the hate crime thing. It's not, like I said, it's not that I hate that they're doing it. It's just, you have a litany of priorities. Some of those priorities you could do just with the wave of your hand. If you want to do student loans, flick of a pen. And the way Chuck Schumer said, if you want to get a marijuana from the league, again, flick of a pen, meaning there are powers that he has at his disposal as president, the things that he said he was going to accomplish. And if you can keep people out of jail for marijuana, I got to be honest, I'll take that over this any day of the week and twice on Sunday. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But, you know, people, people in my chat have been asking, where is Farron's fault? And you know what? She about to go to it now. We're going to take a quick break. That's right. And then we're coming back. And I'm going to tell you all about my fault. You guys, I am knee deep into Slapgate. And I've, I've been holding back not telling Jamarl because I want to get his Yeah, she didn't tell me. Reaction, <laughs> yeah, she didn't tell me the car. His she pure just kind of reaction. So, yeah. I'm prepared. Coming, coming up, we're on Fault Lines, YouTube on my channel and Jamarl's channel. Pick your battles, folks. My chat's better, <laughs> but just saying. Although Mama Thomas is moderating yours. It's actually Oh, really is she? Cute. That's cute. So, I need yeah. to give her moderation powers and exactly. moderating powers. We're back in two, folks. We'll see you then. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Fern Franza, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are going to go to Fern. It seems that you have a fault, Fern. What is your fault of the day? My fault is I cannot stop digging into Slapgate. <laughs> that is my fault. Um, so for those that have been living under a rock and the deep state clearly is trying to distract us with this whole Will Smith, Chris Rock, Slapgate thing at the Oscars. If you didn't see it, again, Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith's wife, saying, you know, can't wait to see you in G.I. Jane 2 because she has a shaved head, not knowing that she had alopecia. Um, now, mind you, the alopecia that she has, it's a tiny little part of her head and she has gone back and said, like, I embrace it. Like, this is how I feel. I'm not, I don't care what people think. Has a whole, like, video, too, saying, like, I don't care what people think. And if when you watch the video again, you see Will Smith. At first, he laughs at the joke, right? right? And then, he, like, you see Jada Pinkett Smith, where she has, like, this horrible, like, I'm an abusive partner look. <laughs> and um, I'm mentally and emotionally abusive. And then he gets up and he goes and slaps Chris Rock, walks back and says, keeps my wife, keeps my, keep my wife's effing name out of your mouth. And Chris Rock is like, dude, it was a G.I. Jane joke. And he's like, keep my wife's name out your effing mouth. And he's like quivering too. Joe Rogan has responded to it. A lot of other people responded to it. But I think one of the best responses that I've heard so far has been from one of my favorite comedians as a kid, I flippin' loved Jim Carrey because I loved Ace Ventura, Pet Detective as a kid. I thought it was like the funniest thing known to man. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is one of my favorite movies. Which ones? Eternal, Sun Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I think it's, I may be getting the title. Is it title. a funny movie? Ish. It's really good. It's Jim Carrey. You are officially a buzzkill. No, no, no. Not it's Jim Carrey. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. No, because no, 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 you're like, I like the the serious, no, the no, serious no, no. Sorry, Jim Carrey. I like the ones where he's like going off the rails and he's like not funny at all. And I'm like, I like Ace Ventura. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I'm no, sorry. no, no. You're I'm fine. Sorry. Um, But yeah. So, oh yeah. Lathe. Great movie, Jamaro. Lathe, get out of our Google chat. <laughs> I'm mad at you right now. Get out of our Google chat. Producer Lathe. Um, yeah, late. It's a dark movie. Um, I like the lighthearted stuff. But yeah, so Jim Carrey, though, goes on to talk about their new Sonic movie coming out with shout out to my friend Jonathan Harris, who is like obsessed with Sonic at like in his 30s. Um, <laughs> but he, I, ever, I met him at RT America and I'm like, he's watches watches one of two things. He was either watching the Golden Girls or Sonic. And I was like, love the Golden Girls, my all time favorite show. Sonic can't get behind it. Um, but yeah, but so he was on with Gail King on CBS this morning talking about Sonic. And then, and again, this was the day after the Oscars. And she asked him about the slap. And here is what Jim Carrey, Ace Ventura pet detective, had to say. I think it's the best response that I've heard so far. Take a listen. I almost said gander. <laughs> I was sickened. I was sickened by the standing ovation. I felt like Hollywood is just spineless on mass. And uh, it just, it really felt like, oh, this is a really clear indication that uh, we're not the cool club anymore. There was some question today about if anyone else had walked from the audience and done that, they would have been escorted out by security or maybe even arrested. The police asked, asked Chris they if he been. wanted to file charges. They asked Chris, do you want to file charges? And Chris apparently said, no, he did not. He doesn't want the hassle. I, I'd have I'd announced 
this morning that I was suing Will for $200 million because that video is going to be there forever. It's going to be ubiquitous. You know, that insult is going to last a very long time. If you want to yell from the audience and disapprove or sh show a disapproval or say something on Twitter or whatever, you, you know, you do not have the right to, to walk up on stage and smack somebody in the face because they said words. No, no, I agree. I, I think we all agree on that. I just thought, Jim, but, that it escalated to that. You but, know what I mean? That it escalated to that level. It didn't escalate. It came out of nowhere because Will has something going on inside him that's yes. frustrated. And I, I, I wish him the best. I really do. I don't, I don't, you know, mm -hmm. I don't have anything against Will Smith. He's done great things. But that was have not a to good moment. It cast a, a pall over everybody's shining moment. Last night, you know, a lot of people worked really hard to get to that place and to have their moment in the sun and to, to get their award for the really hard work they did. And, a, and, a, and it, it is no mean feat to go through all the stuff you have to go through when you're nominated for an Oscar. It's a gauntlet of devotion that you have to do. And uh, and, you know, just it was just a selfish moment to cast a pall over the whole thing. Jill, Jill Biden, starfish clap. Great uh, response. Jeff, Jeff Adelman in the chat. Case solved by Pet Detective. Perfect. <laughs> and he um, said she got something going on. It's like Jada got something in her too. Well, I mean, here's the thing now. So, Slapgate. It's now coming out where people, and, and this is why I love the internet. First of all, all of the comedic comebacks. I'm not going to say all of his jokes, but I sent it to the group chat yesterday. Too funny. Comedian Andrew Scholes did a, I'll link it in my chat to see it. Andrew Scholes did an amazing, like he, he's dressed up in a complete <laughs> medieval soldier outfit. And he's like, I am going to defend Chris Rock and every comedian out there. And I'm going to start saying way more jokes about Jada Pinkett Smith. Pinkett Smith. And he goes something like, the one joke that was my favorite, he goes, don't be mad about, don't feel bad for Chris Rock. He's going to come back next year with more bobs and weaves ready to go than Jada Pinkett Smith. And it was like, <laughs> I mean, he just went in on her, which oh, yeah. it's like, like, Will, come on. But so here's what happened though, folks. And and I have to give this credit to Beauty and the Boomer. Um, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to mess up her. Chanda is her name. I, I was calling her Chandra. It's Chanda. Uh, it's Oz and Chanda. Chanda brought this forward and I was like, whoa. So the internet has been showing all of these pictures saying, you know, how they think it was staged. Right. The fact that he leaned into it, the fact that he stood there and they have the shot right well when Will Smith, is, his hand is up and before he's about to hit him, and his hands are behind his back. Now, granted, this could be where he did it so quick that he didn't even realize. However, the, the, the picture captures him where it looks like he's bracing for it. Yep. But here's the one big thing that this very well could be true. Do you know who the sponsors of the Oscars were this year? Um, I do not, actually. Okay. So the Oscars have been tanking in the ratings because... And again, like you had, for example, in 2016. Oh, you're saying it's staged because they were trying to up the... Hang on, hang on. I'm getting there. In 2016, you had Jada Pinkett Smith where she boycotted the Oscars because it was Oscar so white because Will Smith didn't get an Academy Award. And mind you, Chris Rock already had beef because he was like, Jada, Will Smith got paid $20 million for Wild Wild West. Like, sit down. 
And so there's always the been kind of beef, sucked. I think. The movie yeah, was it's horrible. terrible. Although my youngest brother loves it. I don't know why. You know, he gave up The Matrix for that. Will Smith was Stupid supposed to be move. Neo in The Matrix. His wife he gave did it up it, a while. She was West. in the third one. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll yeah watched learned, in the corner. <laughs> but but they're, so what they're saying is, is since the, the ratings have been so bad, this year, the sponsors of the Oscars was Pfizer and Binotech. And Pfizer is coming out with the new pill for alopecia. And they're saying, oh, hang on a second. One, we can't call it female pattern baldness because that's going to not be attractive. What if we took somebody who might has it? And again, this is all speculation and conspiracy in the deep dive, okay, folks? There's a lot of coincidences here, There's a here, lot though. of coincidences here. And like I said, I've been really into this. <laughs> but, but they said, if we have somebody that has alopecia and something happens at the Oscars, all I'm saying is if in six months from now, you see Jada Pinkett on a commercial for alopecia by Pfizer, this was completely staged. She basically got her lunch there yeah. with Will Smith assaulting Chris Rock. And mind you, Pfizer sponsored the Academy Awards while at the same time pushing a vaccine on six-month to five-year-old kids. Oh, is it possible so, that they, man, that's a weird one. God, yeah, that's, that's a lot of coincidences. Yeah, very I mean, fine. This is like the JFK assassination. Yeah, oh, it yeah. is. <laughs> right. That's why right. it's called Slapgate, sir. <laughs> um, but yeah, when I saw that, and again, Chandra on, um, or sorry, Chanda, Chanda, Chanda on Beauty and the Boomer. Uh-huh. Um, I was, and she opened my mind and I was like, whoa. That's very weird. This is real weird. That Especially is very weird. that they're coming out with an alopecia drug. And then she even went as far, Chanda saying, I looked up to see who all of their new filings have been with and who they've had new partners with and who like all of the, because they have to show that on their website. Right now, if you look it up, error 404. Really? Yep. This is, these are the deep internet Deep, like this is the deep dark web that one Karen, when she was like, How do I get to the dark web? I gotta be I think right. this is on it. I, I think it's this like, is it. Like, folks. Karen, why do you want to go to the dark web? I want to find out about alopecia drugs. That's wild. Okay, so that is wild. I mean, that's a lot of coincidences. So, yeah. Jada Pickett is there. She has alopecia. Will Smith is there. Will Smith goes on assault. They even have video of Will Smith making fun of um, a guy who's bald on, on Arsenio Hall and him being like, Oh, come on. It's just a, it's just a bald joke. I mean, there's just so many things. I got to be honest. I think this has more to do with Will sitting in the corner watching his wife getting ripped. That's well, what that's, I think. Well, that's it too. I think that's a lot of it. Where but why, not, why you, not ask a couple that's already going through a lot of crap? Like, hey. And mind you, they're also saying too that, that Chris Rock didn't even write that joke. It was one of his writers. Really? And that's where they're saying... Oh, was like a Did writer in on that it. Joke yeah, to Chris Rock. I mean, there's just so many things happening that I'm just I I don't know, guys. Because the only people who you would need to really tell is Smith and, and Jada, or just Smith. Yeah, well, I mean, you feed the joke. Smith goes up there, hits him. Pops you, mean, him. you mean Chris? Ro- oh, you mean feed the joke to Chris Rock? Yeah, yeah. That's all you need. I mean, like, I mean, or Will Smith. I mean, you know, if he's anyone. But wow, that is very weird. And folks, let's be clear here. As, and like I said, if, if you watch Beauty and the Boomer last night, she breaks it down. But she's like, she's like, folks, yourself. she's like, they're paid, they're actors. Yeah. This is their life. And, and you know, Will Smith knows, I mean, he, and another thing she brought up, she's like, he played Muhammad Ali. He yes. actually went through boxing and like, he's taller than him, weighs oh, yeah. more than him, slaps him. She's like, when you're hit, 
like your body's naturally going to kind of react. Whereas and he, he got hit with his there. hands behind his back. Right. If I'm not mistaken. And yes, it was he like, stands there. Yeah. And like I said, it could be either he, it was so unexpected or let me, and they show where he's, his, he braces. Yeah. The pictures look like he braced, he's bracing for it. As a human, I mean, but if you were falling, you automatically put your hands up if you can. So is it a situation where he sees him about to punch? He flinches because he sees he's about to punch and just braces for the punch. I don't know. I, I would have to get, you know, like a, a body expert on, on you know, because they actually have body experts that study this Do you stuff. think he would have did that to David Chappelle? Oh, hell no. Yeah, I don't think and so And David Chappelle would have been up there like, yep, Pfizer tried to, to try to pay me off. I think he would have knocked him out and I think he would have started David making more jokes about Jada Pinkett. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So again, Pfizer coming out with this alopecia drug, not wanting to call it male, female pattern baldness. And um, it's not sexy enough. And call it the Pinkett. And the, the Oscar ratings are down. I mean, look, this is all we're talking about. Yeah. And so they won here. But yeah, Pfizer and Binotech were the sole sponsors this year of the Oscars. Let's bring this up with Garland, because I want to talk about this from another angle, whether it's real or not. That is that one of the, um, what is his name? Stephen something. He's a sports guy. His big mouth. Stephen A. Smith. Yeah, Stephen A. Smith. His big mouth. I typically don't like him. But yeah, every actually, so often, I actually played his, his soundbite too on, on Monday. Yeah, he said some really insightful things at times. And this was one of those things where I, I started looking. And I was like, yeah, this guy's right. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Tom, Fault Lines. Lines. Thomas Franzak. <laughs> Back in a moment with the one and only Garland Nixon. Woo-woo! Garland Nixon. Woo-woo! Coming back. He's coming back. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my lovely co-host, Baron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging with Farron and I, are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share the audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. We've been having a little difficulty with Rumble, but we are on both of our channels, on Farron's channel, Fair and Balance, and on my channel, Jamal Thomas. Go to whichever one you basically want. Um, and I want to continue this conversation that we have basically with the infamous slap heard around the world. Yeah, and uh, shout out to Pat Hacker asking in the chat, is Pfizer stock up today? And apparently they are. Oh, it is, folks. A- apparently they are. So, so let's start with our um, guest, Garland Nixon. Garland Nix is a Sputnik analyst and co-host of The Critical Hour, airing Monday through Friday from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern, right here on Radio Sputnik. Not to mention the former host of the show, Garland. Welcome to the show, my man. Morning, How are you doing Garland. this morning? Good morning. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And one of our audience members was like, hey, get Garland on. And I was like, we'll do that. We haven't had him on for we a while. We live to serve. Yeah. How are you doing this morning? You doing all right? I'm doing fantastic. Just I was listening to the show. Oh, Excellent. Excellent. Oh, well, I'm actually glad you're not here because I was going to say, if Jamar says something stupid, he can't slap you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to get into that. Um, Stephen A. Smith made this point about how depraved this was from the perspective of context of race, meaning this idea that one African-American 
got on stage and assaulted another African-American, basically black on black crime at the, at the at award ceremony. Also millionaire and millionaire crime. Millionaire, yeah. millionaire crime, that too. But of course, the context becomes these kind of caricatures of African-Americans that have gone through history. It's a, like a historical context. And so you have this situation basically playing out live. These two black people are beating each other up on stage. They can't even get along even when they're millionaires. Stephen A. Smith made the point of this is a stain that Will Smith would never live down. What is your thought on this? I, I thought that was an interesting perspective because um, initially my thought was, I guess Will Smith is so familiar at this point. We're just like, I can't believe Will Smith did that. But if you look at this kind of in a different context, yeah, I can see where Stephen A. Smith is going with that. What are your thoughts? Well, well you know, I, to, to, I think it makes Will Smith look like a wimp. I think it makes him look really, really wimpy. That's my thing. It makes him look weak. When I looked at it, I'm like, man, you look weak. Uh, you know, because here's the thing. Okay, you're the tough guy. It's either one of two things. He's either coming across as I lost control and I went in and I attacked this guy, right? Or I'm the tough guy and I'm defending my wife's honor. So that's key. There's some combination of the two of those he seems to be coming across. Okay, if you want to convince me of either of those, Instead of Chris Rock slap Dwayne The Rock Johnson, right. I have <laughs> right. a feeling that if The Rock was up there, that um, defending his wife's honor and losing control, he would have been a bit more under control because when his hand reached back, he'd have found himself on his behind 10 feet away when Dwayne The Rock Johnson lifted him off the ground with a right hook. But he wouldn't even have done it. So the idea that you're going to go slap a guy half your size, you want to impress me? Jackie Chan, there you go. Go up there and slap Jackie Chan and let me know how that works out, buddy. So to me, like you're showing off that you can hit somebody smaller than you. You look weak. You look like a wimp. And I don't can't respect you because you're a fraud. And not even that. Like, I just know from my brothers that it's one thing to punch a guy, but to slap a guy. I've always heard that that is way worse than a punch. I don't, I don't know what the whole thing is behind it, but I've just, I've always heard it. It's an insult. It's like for, <laughs> I hate to say this, this sounds massively. Um, Radically masculine? No, no, this <laughs> actually sounds so chauvinistic. But basically, you slap a woman, you punch a man. And that's the way the guys think. It's like, if you're slapping me, it's, it's almost like you're feminizing me in this kind of weird oh, way. Oh, okay, that's why. Yeah, it's, don't get me wrong, none of it's real. It's just the way that right. they frame it. Now, one of the things that people are, are saying is they're like, yo, the LA County Sheriff's Office it's it's in front of thousands of people yep. at one of the number one or used to be number one, but, you know, one of the biggest nights in television and no charges filed. You know, you saw Jim Carrey where he's like, he doesn't want to deal with having to sue him I'd actually, or having to charge him. And if anything, I would just sue him because there's going to be video of that. Um, but, you know, everyone's saying, is this now a status thing? The fact that he's a celebrity and then they're not going to put press charges what say you, Garland? Oh, absolutely. I mean, let's face it. You know, I was a law enforcement officer. A crime, I'm going to guarantee you there was one or two police officers watching the Oscar, which means a crime occurred in front of a police officer, which means the police have a duty to charge. That's a crime against the peace of the metropolitan, you know, uh, 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 against the city of Los Angeles. So, yes. Now, but what does that come back to? You're rich. You're famous. So they allow rich and famous people to kind of work these things out. If you are an average poor schmuck and there's two cops standing there in the mall and you just walk up and slap another person, they're going to throw you to the ground and they'll probably beat you for a while and then drag you off and go to jail. But if you're worth three or four hundred million, 
eh, they're going to touch it. So that is um, simply there's a different uh, legal system for the rich than there is for the poor. Now, one of the things that we were talking about that we wanted to talk to you about um, more so, because, you know, again, we have this whole corruption, like now there's the conspiracy that Pfizer was behind it since they were, you know, the sponsors of the Oscars and they have this new alopecia drug coming out, as we talked about before the break. Um a lot of corruption also going on within the White House. For example, and I've been looking into this um, and, and nobody's talking about this. I tweeted it and it got zero traction. And I was like, Am I, is my voice not heard enough? Um, I'll, I'll retweet but, you. Where are you? I don't want my, yeah. my co-host yeah. to go lonely. <laughs> but, but Let so, me find it. But so what happened was, is over the weekend, you had Joe Biden coming out saying that Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker, who is beloved by many, you know, as, as the NFL star or what have you, although he did come out in support of Trump, which he might have lost some folks. Um, Dr. Oz, he's running for Senate in Pennsylvania as a Republican. They were both appointed by Trump to kind of have this like health position. Biden tells them you need to resign by like midnight Saturday or I'm firing you. Well, they said like, we're not resigning. So Biden ultimately fires them, both of them, and replaces them with this chef, Jose Andres, <laughs> who is in charge. He's got his own humanitarian effort called the like the World Health Kitchen where he goes around and he gives humanitarian aid to refugees. He is in Ukraine right now, supposedly giving all of this food to these refugees, you know, and all that, which is great, fine. But when you dig into him, you find out that he was helping refugees in New York, in particular refugees from, let's say, southern border, like below the southern border, finding out that he was actually working with ICE and other, uh, you know, government agencies where one day these refugees are getting food, the next day they're getting carted off to immigration services. And a lot of other restaurants, because what he would do is he, he would have restaurants that would, you know, come in and donate food and, and help and, and, you know, save, you know, give food to these refugees. And a lot of them said, you know what? We, we'll, we're going to still do it, but we don't want to be a part of his like World Health Kitchen because we've figured out the ties that this guy has. Now, a lot of it, I think, is, you know, he's over there and maybe it's his image to not show his corruption. But you see so much of this in um, not just the Biden administration. You see it in every administration all across D.C. It truly is a swamp. Well, then, Jamara, what was the other one um, we were talking about yesterday? The PPP loans. Yeah. That was one that of the one. other ones. So the PPP loans have been ridiculously corrupt. And it's hard to get it across. Like, it's basically a leaky faucet. I'll just read right here. Um, they came into riches by participating in what experts say is the theft of as much as $80 billion or 10% of the $800 billion handed out to the COVID relief plan known as the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. That's on top of the $90 billion up to $400 billion, um, believed to have been stolen from the $900 billion COVID Unemployment Relief Program, at least half taken by international fraudsters. As NBC reported last year, and another $80 billion potentially pilfered from a separate disaster program. The total $579 billion that they estimated lost, stolen, couldn't keep track of as they were pushing this money out. So basically half of the money that these guys put out was basically taken. I, that's astonishing. Astonishing. And I get that you want to, you know, get money out as soon as possible. But what is the point of getting money out if half of the money that you get out basically gets stolen? And then my co-host says I pay $50 in taxes. Are you insane? Yeah. 
Are you saying? I have to pay 50 bucks back, Garland. Garland, what are your thoughts on this, man? This level of corruption. And by the way, Garland, there's one more story. Eric Schmidt, who's basically, apparently, hand in glove in the White House and in the science office. And Eric Schmidt used to run Google. He's on all sorts of tech firms and everything else. And this guy, in some cases, was even paying people's salary and working almost in tandem with the science office for the White House. This is corruption on a scale that is astonishing. And if this was Donald Trump, heads would explode. But it's not Trump. It's Biden. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the the issue with the um with the COVID funds and how you know there were people just you know creating little fake businesses on a scale where they could get a couple thousand dollars all the way up to people getting millions. It was corruption all over the place. I'm glad you brought that up for this reason. I used to teach organized crime. And one of the things that I focused on in organized crime was prohibition. During prohibition, one of the things they found that, you know, certainly the the government agents that were tasked with um, regulating the and, and, you know, enforcing the prohibition laws were notoriously corrupt. They, they you know, they made like, you know, um, a government check and they had like three houses on, you know, summer homes. They were notoriously paid off by the gangsters. What they found historically during prohibition was that all the other crimes went up everywhere. Every crime you could think of in the U.S. went up. Why is that? Because when people see um, 2008 and they see the level of corruption on Wall Street and the people are paid off, they see the Hunter Biden laptop, they see the people at the top involved in immense corruption. They, you know, the head, what is it? A fish rots from the head down. People say, well, that's the, the rich people are doing it. The powerful people are doing it. That's the way things are done. And you get an environment of corruption. When this money comes out, the average person on the street just says, well, I'll go start a, go run down to the local business office in my, in, in my state and I'll start a fake business and then I can get a check for three or four or 10,000, whatever I can get, put some fake employee names on it. The, it. It makes perfect sense historically throughout the world in various societies, we see that when there's massive corruption at the top, the people all in the middle of the bottom take their cue from that and just simply say, well, that's the way it's done. I'm getting mine too. So it makes sense. You know, that's, I didn't know that you taught organized crime. That's actually super interesting because my question is, is, you know, one of the, the other things is they, they always talk about, you know, how the IRS needs money because they need to get more employees to go after a lot of these rich criminals who are, are, are you know, you know, tax evasion and what have you. Um, what is the reverse of that, though? Because, I mean, you see it where, for example, with the IRS, it's the little guy that always gets you know, dragged into court or the one that gets slapped with you or that gets audited or what have you. And the big guy never does get caught. Um, or, or if they do, it takes years in the making because they have the money to have all these lawyers. The government agencies don't have enough time or resources to go after some of these people. I mean, when you're, you're at the bottom of this end, I mean, what, it's one of those things like, it's frustrating, but it's like, is it ever going to get cured? Well, the thing, uh, what happens is people kind of, they may not say it out loud, but they intuitively understand that they are in a corrupt society. They, they understand, you know, because look, there's rules, there's written rules, and there's unwritten rules, formal and informal rules. People, uh, you know, intuitively understand the informal rules. And when they see people doing everything, I mean, a perfect example, when they look and they're like, well, wait a minute, this Ukraine thing happened. Mitt Romney's kid, um, uh, Nancy Pelosi's, 
Uh, Hunter, Hunter Biden. Biden. Hunter Biden. That's uh, right. John Kerry's uh, stepson, and they see these people over there getting money any kind of way they can, and they see the people at the very top of the government doing everything they can to cover it up. They inherently understand that's the way the system works. If you can get it, get it. If you can get away with it, get away with it. If you guys are going to play the game, that's the game we're playing. I'm in. That was pretty much it. And and so you know, in order to in order to fix those kinds of things, you have to enforce these things at the top. You have to stop it at the top. And it doesn't appear like it's going to stop at the top. It's only getting worse. It's funny that people, talk, and I, I'll keep throwing this in there. When people talk about the level of corruption, Ukraine was the most corrupt country in the world. It was the perfect country for the U.S. government to choose because there's lots of corruption. Hey, that's what we do. We can go over there and we can hide our corruption. Look, let me add this. Why would the FBI open an anti-corruption bureau in Ukraine? It is a their task with like terrorism, very specific kidnapping, bank robberies, very specific U.S. crimes. Why would they go to Ukraine and open an anti-corruption bureau? And, and they can't figure out that Hunter Biden's involved in corruption. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, and, oblivious to that part. And hang on, let me let's add to the Hunter Biden thing. OK, and if I, I'll pull up the names, but you have yesterday it came out. OK, this Hunter Biden thing, you had the New York Post that was censored when they put this out there. That's right. Miranda it was Devine. just revealed yesterday. You had 13 senators, including Senator Marsha Blackburn, Senator Lindsey Graham, um, Senator. Oh, God, he's an old guy. And I know that's not narrowing it down. Um, like, uh, it'll come to me. But 80%. it was a mix of Democrats and Republicans. There was about 13 of them that had. All of Hunter Biden's emails. Really? Had all of the emails, had everything, did not investigate. Oh, you got to send me that link. Did not investigate. I talked to somebody yesterday who worked in the Biden administration, you know, because he's having all these wonderful goofs and gaffes. And they were like, yeah, like he is so corrupt in the sense. And, and they said also he doesn't really know what's like, not that he doesn't know what's going on, but he like, for example, they would he would always say like, hey, how should I vote on this? Yeah. How should I vote on that? And the, and the one person told me like his staff members used to freak out because he'd like go to lunch with Senator Orrin Hatch and he'd be like, okay, yeah. And then he would go vote. And his staff was like, dude, no, <laughs> no, you can't just go to lunch and get, and get a vote. It's like you last know? person you talk to. Exactly. And, and that's where he was saying he would, you know, cross the aisle and stuff. But, you know, again, with with that being said, how Joe Biden has been kind of the, oh, I'm a mediator with this and this. And, you know, he's he's probably done a lot of favors. He was there for a long time. And here you have these senators that had the info, did nothing on both sides of the aisle. You know, we talked to Roger Stone yesterday who said it's the insiders versus the outsiders, except the insiders never get charged with this stuff. And it's like, as a regular everyday citizen, how do you hold these people accountable? We always hear, oh, we'll just go to the ballot box. No, because we can't even trust that anymore. Well, to me, there's something far worse. The FBI had it the whole time for like a year. At the time that Donald Trump was being um, uh, uh, impeached for implying to Zelensky that um, there should be an investigation against Hunter Biden, the FBI had the laptop and they knew that his impeachment was not meritorious because they knew everything that Hunter Biden had done. They knew they, they, so they had all of this stuff for a year. At the time, the, the, the New York Post was being censored and 51 former intelligence officials were saying that they had all the earmarks of Russian disinformation. The FBI had the laptop 
laptop. They knew it wasn't Russian information, the disinformation. They knew it was all valid. So the FBI sat by. They allowed Trump to be impeached. They allowed the, the censorship of the story, and they knew it was all true. So the corruption goes all the way up to the FBI. So now who's going to do the investigation? The FBI is dirty from the top to the bottom. They're doing and they're creating an anti-corruption uh, bureau in Ukraine. It's, the website is still up there. Uh, up, it's called Nabu. Right. So they're they're doing that, and they've got evidence of massive corruption in Ukraine because they have the laptop and they don't investigate it with their anti-corruption bureau in bureau in Ukraine. So at this point, why do you? Why wouldn't we expect the average Joe to go out there and say, "Hey, there's some funds out there for unemployment or whatever. I'm getting mine. These people are all crooked." It, it only makes sense. I think it, and. and- you're absolutely right. I think you and Fern are dead on on this one. And I want to add in stress or um, lack, meaning you have a country that what half of the population basically is poor. Now, this argument, I don't think entirely fits just because many of the people who were able to take advantage of the PPP loans were already wealthy or for that matter, already had a business or already had something like that. So I guess this argument doesn't necessarily apply. By but the from, way, I have really quick the it. names of those senators. Oh, and it. this is going to shock you. It's I, I even looking at this now again, because right, you hear some of these names and you see how how they go after a lot of Democrats as far as the Republican side. So it was Jack Maxey gave a copy of Hunter Biden's laptop last summer, folks, to Republican Chuck Grassley, Republican Lindsey Graham, Republican John Cornyn, Republican Mike Lee, Republican Ted Cruz, Republican Ben Sass. Republican Josh Hawley, Republican Tom Cotton, Republican John Kennedy, Republican Tom Tillis, Republican Marsha Blackburn. All of them Republicans did nothing. You fakes. All of your fakes. Ted Cruz, yes. slimy, slimy Ted Cruz John didn't Corden, do anything who, about it. Who was an investor? I, I he was a lawyer and in big and in like high crimes and stuff like that. Um, Big Tom Cotton, in it. who's all about, you know, investigating yep. China and, and all of the um, intellectual property cases. These guys did nothing. Wow. And, and Marsha Blackburn going against um, child pedophiles and going against sex trafficking. That's her big thing. And um, and women sex workers and women being put in the slave trade. Nothing. Garland, why do you think? That they're giving this such a pass. And I mean, Republicans. I get why Democrats are doing it. I even get why media. I even get why Lindsey Graham did too, because he's buddy-buddy with Joe. Right, right. So fair enough for them. But Ted Cruz, um, Blackburn, Cornyn, Cotton, Josh Hawley. Yeah. Uh, these guys look like they would, like, they're all swim on in the that Senate, They're all on the Senate Judiciary Committee. All of them. They're all lawyers. Yep. So I would say this. This is why I argue for the first time, you know, generally, what do we see? We see parties concerned with losing in the midterms. We've got to do something so we won't get creamed in the midterms. And like for the first time in my life, the Democrats look to get wiped out in the midterms and they're not even phased. Nobody in, it's like not, you would think Chuck Todd, you would think that all of the normal, the MS, Rachel Maddow, the MSNBC would be up in arms. Oh, we've got to do something. They don't care. Why? Because there's no Democrats and Republicans anymore. Because the truth is, they don't care who loses or wins in the midterms. It doesn't matter anymore. The oligarchs, the corporate billionaires have assumed full control of both parties. So what difference does it make which evidence goes to who and which party? They're all playing the same game. That $813 billion for that Joe Biden just asked for 
or uh, the, um, the 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 Pentagon, it ain't going to fly because it ain't enough. They're going to have to give them another 20 billion and both parties will near unanimously vote in favor of that. So the reality is we say, well, my gosh, this person's of a different party. Why won't they act? Because they're not of a different party. There is a party and it plays the game. And every now and then, you know, they elbow each other in front of us. And then they get, they go in the back room and they smile and laugh and they pass the money around. And what difference does it make? It wouldn't matter if they were all one party or all the other party controlling Congress. You're going to get the same thing. Yeah, you have this kind of weird effect where these guys are so closely related. I think Roger Stone said something like that yesterday, talking about how closely related Democrats and Republicans were. Insiders versus outsiders. Yeah. And I got to be honest, I think he's right. I mean, if you're looking, is that really that much of a difference between, let's say, a Joe Manchin and a Lindsey Graham? Not really. I mean, is there, and this idea that Nancy Pelosi is progressive? No. I mean, these guys, I think this is yeah. more of an issue of class more than anything else. These guys are in a particular class. George Bush said it one day. He was like, the governing class, governing class, this clown that got a million people killed in Iraq, um, and talking about he's part of the governing class. I think it's that. And the catch is, if somebody has $100 million, what does a person with $100 million know about your life? Meaning the struggles and the difficulties that you deal with on a daily basis of not having the things that you basically need, or for that matter, being vulnerable and insecure. $100 million Nancy Pelosi, how on earth is she going to fully grasp and understand your reality? And you can go to the rest of them because the overwhelming majority of them are in the same boat, rich. They don't care about us. And here's the other thing. They all got something to hide. They're all getting paid, you know, in one way or the other by the same people. They're all playing the same game. So the bottom line is, you know, I have to pretend I can go after you for some, you know, uh, a trans bathroom bill or for, you know, claim something about there's people at the border coming across that's going to, you know, take our jobs. I can do those kinds of traditional uh, uh, um, ideological partisan attacks, but I can't go after you for corruption because we're all doing illegal insider stock trading. There's certain things that are off limits. And that again, why Donald Trump get impeached? Because he went after Joe Biden for corruption in Ukraine. You can't go after for corruption. So even if one, a person from one party wanted to go after the other party for corruption, how could they when they're just as corrupt? So we now have a, they just cancel each other out. Now you had, oh gosh, what's his name? Um, Madison Cawthorn come out yesterday or two days over the weekend in a podcast saying how, you know, he's talking about how they invited him to these orgies and what have you. But the point he was making was, is they bring you to these places to almost create dirt on you to use it in like 15 years if you're not going to vote the same way. And do you think a kid like him, he's a 90s baby, he's 26. Like 20 something, yeah. Yeah. Is, is he going to, is it like, is it the next generation that's going to have to blow the lid off on these old fogies? And they ain't going to do it. <laughs> you know, not from the inside. Once, you know, that's the thing. Once people get to the, get in the inside and they see all that stuff, you know, somebody will say something, it'll hit the 24 hour news cycle a little bit and it'll disappear because, you know, um, it, 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 that's the way the game is played. One thing that's coming out too, that's coming out now. And that's another thing is that Man, there's some weird sexual deviant crap going on yeah. with this, with this <laughs> yeah. elite ruling class. You know, there's some things that you just shake your head and say, Darling, we're gonna, I guess they're just. We're going to have to close it because um, we're coming up to the hour. But yeah, I mean, I, my take is he should just be happy that he got invited. 
<laughs> Personally, um, but <laughs> you don't want to you don't want to orgy with Pelosi and and Schumer and all these other guys. Well, and, and they Peter take Schiff. their dentures out. Yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> uh, but Garland Nixon, Thanks, you can find Garland. him on Critical Hour from six to eight p.m. right here on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. Ern Franzak. Back in a moment for the last hour. Fault lines. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I am your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Mascot Mary, but I am your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. I guess that makes me the pierogi king. Maybe. Nope, that's Mark Sloboda. That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franza. What a night to me. I meant to say Prince, the pierogi no, prince. No, no, you're the pierogi surf. Surf? Because you didn't even eat. I ate one. You ate one, but pierogi One doesn't prince, count? Pierogi princes eat their entire plate of pierogies. You are not awarded that title. I, you okay. don't even get Duke, Duchess, or Lord. I, I nope. put... Just to be clear. You're to, the pierogi jester, to as, be, Leith, to as be, Leith says. <laughs> to be perfectly... <laughs> Um, candid. I put one on the plate and I finished my plate. I also ate some of the kibasa. So if it is indeed true Sir, that, that you have to finish... That is a joke, which is why you are the pierogi jester. <laughs> you are the pierogi jester. I ate pierogi. I typically don't eat pierogi. You can ask my mom. I am very choicy. And the fact that I sat there and ate one is a massive, um, you know, affirmation of awesomeness for you guys. Pierogi jester. <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to... I'm gonna, we're, we're in the process of getting merch done. Yes, yes, and we I are. And I think Pierogi Jester just might make the list. Radically masculine would be on a condom. <laughs> That's going to be on one of them. Actually, yeah, we, we were thinking about getting condoms, but yeah. where it says it's not our fault. That was our producer. Yeah, our, pro- <laughs> <laughs> our producer was like, can we get condoms? It was like, okay, what have you been doing, buddy? <laughs> um, but yeah, we're going to get merch um, so you guys can get it. And we've been thinking of like what it's going to look like and everything else. So definitely stay tuned for that. That should be good. Um, yeah. But let's get into headlines. In the news, many Americans have taken significant steps back from once routine COVID precautions, with less than half now saying they regularly wear masks, avoid crowds, and skip non-essential travel. An AP poll found that 44% of those of they of them often or always wear face masks around people outside their homes, down from 65% in January when infections of the highly contagious Omicron variant were soaring. And just 40% say they largely avoid non-essential travel compared to 60% in January. In national news, U.S. officials are preparing for the possibility of thousands of more migrants per day attempting to cross the United States-Mexico border illegally, a pace that could shatter last year's record-breaking levels as the Biden administration weighs lifting a COVID-era order, currently blocking most asylum seekers. As of mid-March, around 5,000 illegal aliens were arriving per day on average, and the Department of Homeland Security is bracing for as many as 18,000 per day. Under Title 42, a COVID-19 health order enacted in March 2020, the United States border agents can, quote-unquote, expel migrants to Mexico within hours of or rapidly send them to other countries without the opportunity to seek asylum in the United States. Implemented by former President Trump, President Joe Biden has so far kept the order in place. Oh, you need asylum? Yeah, no. We're going to just deport you to a country that you know nothing about. 
We've had the woman on talking about the immigration system, and it is a mess. Some of the people who basically come into the country would have to wait for like years, sometimes up to a decade before we make a determination on whether or not we're going to allow those people into the country, in which case they're in this kind of weird limbo with only a small percentage actually making the cut. Many of the other ones that just get deported, sometimes deported to a country that they know nothing about. It is very weird and it's very unfortunate and it definitely should be fixed, not used as a political cudgel to get Hispanics to vote for Democrats. Let's keep going. President Joe Biden on Tuesday signed a law, signed into law the first federal legislation to make lynching a hate crime, addressing a history of racist killings in the United States after the Senate passed the bill earlier this month. The law is named after Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was brutally murdered in Mississippi in 1955. The bill makes it possible to prosecute as a lynching any conspiracy to commit a hate crime that results in death or serious bodily injury. And Farron and I gave our piece on that, I believe, at 8 o'clock during those headlines. And we'll come back to it. Ukraine and its Western allies dismissed the Russian military pullback from near Kiev as a ploy to refit troops after heavy losses, even as invading forces bombarded cities elsewhere and pressed on with the obliteration of the besieged Maripol. Russia said it would curtail operations near Kiev and the northern city of Chernith to increase mutual trust for peace talks. Ukrainian advisor Oleski Restrovic said Moscow was shifting some forces uh, from northern Ukraine to the east, where it was trying to encircle the main Ukrainian force there. He said some Russians will stay behind near Kiev to tie down Ukrainian forces. That line is probably one of the most important lines in that entire statement, especially from the standpoint of the way that the U.S. media is trying to portray this. The troops were not trying to take Kiev. They weren't trying to take the cities, per se. Surrounding, yes. Tying the military of Ukraine down, yes. Circling the Ukraine military that is in the east, which is the majority, absolutely, with the notion of annihilating that military. We ignored that. We acted as if nothing was going on in the East. It is the weirdest thing ever. And they're only now getting around to saying, hey, it seems like Russia is focusing on the Donbass region. Hey! Yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> yeah. It, how quick of you to find that a month later. Good job. The UN Refugee Agency said more than 4 million refugees have now fled Ukraine since Russia launched its war and the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Aid workers said the numbers have eased in recent days as many people await developments in the war. An estimated 6.5 million people have also been dispatched from their homes within the country. God, Zelensky is a dirtbag. I swear. You sound like my dad. What a dirtbag. I mean, like that's like an old person's thing. What a dirtbag. Fair, fair enough. I, I accept that. <laughs> it's just, as I read this stuff, I think, like, those are real people. Like, those refugees are real human beings. Doctors, lawyers, people who are baristas, people who are just doing regular things just like you and me. Radio hosts. Etc. And those people have now become refugees. Why? Because the United States wanted Ukraine to be within its orbit and it was willing to do whatever it takes, even overthrowing the country to do so. And Zelensky, whether he believed that they were going to be part of NATO, whether he believed they could win a war against Russia, whatever was in his head, he dragged his country, or at the very least allowed it, fighting to the last dead Ukrainian in a proxy war with the United States. Yeah, I do blame him. I blame the U.S. I blame Europe. Um, Joseph Burrell, who came out basically saying, yeah, we shouldn't have offered to NATO. That was a mistake. We shouldn't let total Ukraine. They could do that. Zelensky comes out. Hey, they were saying in the open that NATO needs to stay open. But behind the scenes, you weren't going to be a part of it. This didn't have to happen. All of this chaos, all of these people dying. It is for naught 
It didn't have to happen. You just needed to come to the negotiated table in the beginning, none of this would take place. And so now you're gonna go to the negotiating table and basically give up what they wanted in the first place, if not more, because you were willing to put your people, your military into this situation. This is ghastly. And yeah, it aggravates me. Every time I read these, I keep thinking to myself, this is such a senseless conflict. It didn't have to happen. These people could have came to the negotiating table and made a deal. He didn't want to do that. He didn't want to do that. Let's keep going. A gunman killed at least five people when he opened fire on a busy street in Israel on Tuesday before he was taken out by cops, reports said. The suspect terrorist shooting in B'nai Brak, an ultra-Orthodox suburb of Tel Aviv, comes after two other attacks by Arab citizens that have sparked fear of ongoing violence ahead of the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan on Saturday. The shooter, identified by Israeli media as a 27-year-old Palestinian man from the occupied West Bank, was fatally shot by cops after he randomly fired at people on a balcony passing on the street, according to witnesses. In holiday news, we have National Pencil Day. We have Manatee Appreciation Day. And in Trinidad, Tobago, it is Spiritual Baptist Liberation Day. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. That's what it makes me, you know, it's like liberation. It's like you got to just let it out. It's so emancipatory. I love that word, liberation. Those big words, freedom, justice. It's like, what do those big words mean? It's like Batman is the avatar justice. Um, un- Uncle Andre, can you um, can you z- go to Jamaro's camera or go to my camera really quick? Can you can you come to my camera? This she, is the she folks, need a diva moment. Happens. Let me get out the way. Let me get out the way. Go for it. Can you can you come on? I, I can't see it on the live yet. If I'm if it's me, because I want you folks to see this. This is going to be for Jamaro. Can you see it? Can you see it? You see That's it? so sad. That is, folks. That's so sad. You should be ashamed the pierogi, of yourself. The <laughs> you, you should be this ashamed is, of yourself. This is the graphics <laughs> that we're working on. And I already literally just removed my queen, my, my princess hat to the pierogi jester. That's going to be yours. She's I very talented. It. She's very talented. But I love it. It, it. it is pretty unfortunate that you sit there and spend time doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to flip that out. You're reading headlines and I'm just like, do, 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 do. And I'm like, meep, 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 meep. I ate the pierogi. That's the worst part. I sat there and ate First it. First of all, it's a pierogi. Uh, not, not, I'm sorry. Pierogi. I don't know what you just said. Pierogi. <laughs> is that a pierogi? Pierogi. 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 <laughs> you, it like you, I ate the corgi. Um, excuse me, sir. It didn't you taste one, bad. Hence why you are the jester. That's unfortunate. That's very unfortunate. <laughs> very, very but I, unfortunate. I, I digress. I'm so sorry. We have to add some fun to this, you know, death oh, and destruction world while we, I mean, it's you so know, dark. wait for the end of the world yeah. to chill. It's like four million refugees and Zelensky is continuing his kickstart World War III tour. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, like, it angers me, right? Like, I experience what's taking place now vacillating between excitement and being apoplectic. And apoplectic for a few reasons. One, the way media is recounting it. Two, they're not adding context. They're basically decontextualizing events, which means that if the situation presents itself again, the public is not prepared intellectually to recognize it and say, hey, we don't want to go that route. We don't want to pay those gas prices. We don't want to pass those sanctions. We don't want to create this famine in the various parts of the world. The public needs to be able to get a contextual understanding of events to determine whether or not they want to take the steps again in the future that created this outcome. Meaning, as a person, when you're trying to change your behavior, oftentimes you're trying to figure out what's the root cause of the behavior. You want to know context. Why am I doing X? Why am I doing Y? And from the standpoint of the public, looking at their nation, looking at their state, well, they need to know that too. 
I mean, how can you make a decision on whether something is right or wrong if you don't necessarily have the context and the steps that brought you to that particular place? Right. Decontextualizing this in a way that they're doing ensures that this would happen again. And they're basically using propaganda to cover thoughts and culpability. It's very aggravating to me. Well, not even that. I think it's also aggravating for the American people uh, and just how they're willing to bend over backwards for places like Ukraine. Not saying again, not that we're all like, yeah, fight them and kill them. No, we're we're against war. We're anti-war. But I guess anti-war today means you're a Putin puppet. But for example, like Troy in Kansas City saying, I'm a U.S. citizen who married a Mexican national in 2003, separated in 2009, but we're still legally married and friends. But but anyway, she's been waiting all this time. Immigration is so slow. They've done all the legal documents. Still nothing. And it's like, Mind you, immigrants, they, while, while Fox News will tell you that they don't pay a dime, sometimes they pay even more than we do. Um, but here, you're paying all this tax money, and then you see them go give it to some white country? Yep. You know, and I'm sorry, we got we to gotta talk about the race in this, because again, we were, we were actually, we're working on getting um, a guest tomorrow who was, um, he, he fought yeah. in Afghanistan with our troops, helped them. Something happened, but he, an explosion, but basically amputated from, you know, his his legs are amputated. Um, and I think a couple of his fingers, but he's been here now. And a great report by ProPublica came out talking about how all of these Afghan refugees, particularly in Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin, there's cases of rape um, there. And these are kids. Oh, these are the camps. These are, these are the camp. Afghan refugee camps. With kids getting, you know, molested, kids getting beat up, kids not eating for days at a time, not only all with also like adult women there. And it's like here we're like, oh, we're going to bring a thousand, a hundred thousand Ukrainian refugees and stuff. And what's interesting is even Fox News had on where a lot of these refugees over in Ukraine, they're like, we don't want to leave. Like, we don't want to go to the United States, which I think is hilarious. Or they're like, we don't want to go there. Well, they probably want to stay home. I mean, like, I don't think. Well, not even that, but I mean. Isn't this, isn't this where everybody wants to come to oh, the right. United States? <laughs> right, right. And, and I, I'm not going to lie. Again, this is my guilty pleasure. 90 Day Fiance. It actually is a great learning experience because you do meet these people from like Colombia. Yeah. A lot of them are from Ukraine and Russia. And there was one of them where the, she's like, you, you think, she's from Kiev to yeah. the girl. She's like, you think everything America. We all want to come to America. Like how great it is. It's not that great. We like it here. We don't need to go there. And I was just like, oh my God, because that's all we're told. Yeah. Everybody wants to come here and take our freedoms and take our rights. And it's like, not really. Shining city on a hill. Kind of a dull city on a hill now. I mean, it's self-conception, right? I mean, and I think at, at some point we got into our head that the self-conception was reality. Like mm-hmm. this notion, indispensable nation. No, you're just the nation. No more, no less. There's no mystical quality to it. You're just the nation. Um, or that, you know, uh, um, we're the policemen of the world. Well, you, yes, after World War II, they kind of became that. But let's just be clear. That's not cosmic. That's something that is transitional. I mean, you just got into its head after the Soviet Union fell that we won. And not realizing that there is nothing to win. And unfortunately, this notion that you're in a unipolar world is going to come to odds with the fact that you are not. And that is terrifying. And on some level, you know, I've heard, I forget who was basically saying this, but the map of Europe is basically being redrawn. Where's the West? Where's the East? And in this very specific case, it's like this Ukrainian war where the U.S. is basically using Ukraine as a proxy to bleed Russia white, in a, in a sense, or the, the way the saying goes. It's the new line. Not to mention Russia's 
turning and cooperating with India, China, et cetera, with NATO countries basically being left to their own devices. The world is decoupling. I think Mark is right on this. And and actually, George Galloway spoke about this. He uh, has been phenomenal recently. Oh, yeah. Well, and he spoke about this, I want to say it was two weeks ago, I want to say. But he was talking about how there might be this new I- ideology of Eurasia. Yes. And how... Kids in the history books will learn now what was part of Eurasia from this point forward because you have it where it's this one part of Europe that Russia's always been considered part of Europe and now joining with the East because the West simply kicking its kicking its foot out the door. I mean, even even Tara Reid, I was on her um her live stream yesterday. If, you know, cool if, if you're not watching her Rockfin, it was on her Rockfin yesterday. Give her some love over there. But she was saying how she was in the Biden administration and how she overheard. She's like, you know, when you're a little staffer, she's like, you know, you're a peon and they like talk in front of you as if you're not even there. She goes, and I remember being in these meetings and then being like, doesn't matter, fall of Soviet Union. Okay, we need to make sure now that they are never part of NATO. Told you. And you had... Before Clinton left office, Vladimir Putin was like, hey, can we talk about NATO? And he did not. And he said it in his speech when he had that long, drawn out speech talking about the history, being like, hey, people, read a book here. I'll do it for you. Read this morning. Right. And him saying he even said, like, I have never spoken about this with anybody until now. I asked Bill Clinton about joining NATO. He goes, I'm not going to get into what he said. But basically, the answer was hell to the no. Yeah. Because NATO is there to get you. That's Which again, the catch. you would think if the United States moved head, removed head from sphincter, you'd think, okay, China is this up and coming country. If anything, we would want to align with Russia. That's the normal policy. The normal that's policy a, that's was a common those, sense policy. Exactly. It's pragmatic as pragmatic can be. It, the policy up to this point is very weird. It's almost as if this mindset that we basically won removed diplomacy remove this idea of strategy. Um, and it's almost as if we're believing this kind of weird cosmic that the world or the future will turn out a particular way almost because God made it so as opposed to the decisions that are going into it. What? What's wrong? I just looked the dollar to ruble rate right now. Mm-hmm. Guess where the ruble is right now? Where is it? Yesterday, folks, it was at 0.10. It's at 84.12. Really? Well, you know why, right? Because, Whoa. I mean, and by the way, Whoa. it's not just going to be oil. I mean, I'm sorry, gas and rubles. If you have ga- gas and rubles, you have to have everything in rubles. I mean, because wow. if you think about it, if you can't use dollars <laughs> and if you can't use euros, then you're not going to use those. And are you going to give Europe gas for free? Well, like you said, Europe blinked in this very specific case. I mean, I'm sorry, Russia blinked in this very specific case. And I agree with Mark. They shouldn't have done it. They should have kept to that. Make your, meaning they are waging an economic war to try to fundamentally destroy your country. And not just destroy your country, to make it so miserable and so horrific that the public rises up and gets rid of the leader of the country. Now, this hasn't happened anywhere else. And yet, this is what they're trying to do. And so if you're Russia, I can't use dollars. I can't use euros. I can't use um, the, the Japanese currency, I believe, is yen. So fair enough. You need to pay us in rubles because that's the only thing that has value to us. Europe, if you need that gas, you will be paying rubles. Now, they can't come back and say, hey, well, the contract says this. Hey, well, the contract said you weren't able to steal our money either. You stole our reserves from the bank. You're making it where we can't use this currency. 
Why would we accept a currency that we can't use? It's the most basic thing in the world. So what is Russia going to do? Just give Europe gas for free? Is that what's going to take place? Like, I don't get the blinking on this. If you're going to make a threat, you got to follow through with the threat. Otherwise, you lose credibility. Credibility is extremely important in negotiations. Um, but let's do this. We have a guess. I'm running my mouth. You guys are <laughs> listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak. Back in a moment. With We're KJ out of your rubles. We're going down. Rubles. <laughs> let's get ready to ruble. Pay us some rubles. <laughs> wow. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging with Farron and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. We've been talking about the geopolitical consequences, or let's say the economic consequences of the war in Ukraine, and it basically ended up being somewhat of a war of attrition in an economic sense. The countries in NATO basically are trying to destroy the Russian economy and wage an economic war. Russia's response to this was basically to return the favor on some level in regards to sanctions, but also make this notion about rubles. However you want to cut it, even though Europe and the United States are going this route, they are also suffering pain for what they are doing. I was looking at the UK, who was basically cutting their um, expected growth, and I was even looking at Germany that was basically saying they were going to get 10% inflation just from the sanctions alone, just from the sanctions alone. That's not going to be limited to Germany. And the UK. What is China thinking? At the end of the day, China is sitting back, watching all of this play out, and in some respects, kingmaker. I'm curious about whether or not China thinks that the U.S. has overplayed its hand and it's damaged the economic system or their, let's say, dollar hegemony in the economic system based on using that dollar as a weapon. What is China thinking? To have a conversation, we're joined with KJ No. He's a journalist, political analyst, writer, and teacher specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region. He's a contributor to the book Capitalism on a Ventilator. Once censored by Amazon, it is now available at iacenter.org. KJ, thank you for joining me, man. How are you doing this morning? Good morning, sir. I think we're beyond a ventilator now. I think we're on life support. <laughs> yes, I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, good to be with you. So with this breaking news, they're showing, um, uh, let me pull up this article, The Business Standard showing that the ruble has become the best performing currency in March, soaring to 83 to the dollar. Wow. Um, that was at 0 0.010 at one. And, and we looked at it yesterday. Yeah. Point, yeah, zero yep. one. In one day, um, you know, what does this mean, do you think, with for China now, especially the fact that this whole situation has pushed Russia into the arms yep. of China? As we said just before the break, you would think common sense the U.S. Would, would bring Russia over. No, 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 no. They've pushed them away, and now it's Russia and China. What do you think, KJ? Yes, well, I mean, clearly the U.S. is miscalculating here. As you say, the U.S. is driving Russia deeper and deeper into China's embrace. Um, the fact is that the Chinese are 
absolutely opposed to sanctions, as are uh, 150 countries on the planet. Uh, and they believe that the extreme sanctions will lead to mutual harm, make the situation more complicated and the contradiction more intensified, according to Wang Weibin. So uh, the Chinese do not want this. They do not want uh, an escalation. But it's true that, you know, if there's any country which is going to benefit somewhat from the situation, uh, China is possibly that country. That's a really good point. I mean, it looks like they're playing, playing kingmaker on some level. I mean, the United States has been chastising them, basically saying, you know, choose a side, choose a side. China has said they were ambiguous and not necessarily taking a side, even though just in practicality, um, they clearly are not pushing against Russia. In fact, the more that the U.S. pushes on this, the harder the Chinese position seems to get. Um, same thing with India. They've sent representatives over to India to kind of browbeat them into um, getting on board. Again, India didn't get on board. Many of those countries didn't get on board, despite the pressure that the United States was exerting. If the U.S. decides to turn around and put sanctions on China, and if I'm not mistaken, they did put sanctions on China, China has said it was going to respond ferociously, and I'm using the term ferociously. What is China thinking on this? I mean, are they expecting sanctions? I mean, the sanctions didn't come out of Europe when Biden went over to the trip. He botched the trip. But are they expecting some kind of retaliation from the United States for not jumping on board the bandwagon of wagging the finger at Russia? Yes. Well, you know, um, first, I think the Chinese are willing and ready to uh, retaliate if necessary. Um, they are pointing out, the Chinese are pointing out again that, you know, there are serious consequences to sanctions. Uh, global food security is one of them. Uh, you know, food prices uh, in general. And then they're also asking for the international community to support direct negotiations until a positive outcome is achieved. But, uh, you know, if India, which is uh, supposedly one of the U.S. allies in the Quad, is not willing to go along with U.S. sanctions, in fact, they're, you know, they've made it very clear that they're not going along uh, and that it's actually impossible for them to go along with U.S. sanctions, there's no reason why China should comply. They do not see themselves as being subordinate to U.S. foreign policy, especially when the long-term foreign policy is actually to take down China as well. China sees that, you know, they're next in line. If Russia falls, then we are next in line. So they have absolutely no reason to do anything that would undermine or diminish Russia's standing. Uh, of course, they want peace. They also support Ukraine. They are uh, treaty allies with Ukraine. Ukraine, Ukraine falls under China's um, nuclear umbrella. But what they want more than anything else is they want peace. Uh, if they're forced to pick sides, well, I mean, that's pretty clear already. The U.S. has made that decision for them when in the national defense uh, strategy and national security strategy of uh, 2018, it labeled both countries revisionist powers, i.e. existential threats to the United States. And therefore, the only way for China and Russia to uh, continue to exist is to ally with each other, uh, even more so for Russia, where, you know, Joe Biden let out inadvertently, he said the quiet part out loud, essentially that they want to, they want regime change in Russia. And, you know, when you think of China and all of this, 
we don't know when this whole thing is going to end. Um, we're still, you know, waiting. Like we talked to Mark Salota this morning saying that basically these peace talks are just a nothing burger. Um, do you foresee China um, ever stepping in and taking a side in all of this? Because again, now with the ruble on, ruble on the rise and, you know, seeing a lot of this happen, I think this, I, I mean, for myself, I foresee the United States putting even more pressure now on China with the ruble rising. Do you think this is going to be that final moment where China is going to have to finally pick a side? Well, I think they uh, already have. I mean, they're being diplomatic. Um, they're supporting the process of peace, which is what they want. But, you know, their statement is that for Russia and for China and for the world, security is indivisible. You seek absolute security by uh, pitting one party against another, you get insecurity. And so they do not want to be any part of that insecurity and instability and destabilization. They're saying that the US, NATO, and the UA uh, and the EU should engage in dialogue with Russia, could accommodate the legitimate security concerns. And then build a balanced, effective, and sustainable regional security architecture that is actually not that hard to do. The U.S. does not need to continue to buckle down, press down, bear down on this, you know, dead end, zero sum, uh, you know, catastrophic game. There's no reason for that. And China's offer is to, uh, you know, to you know, offer its good services uh, to good offices to, you know, to assure that uh, that can happen. That would work if we were dealing with people of good conscience. But like you said, it's zero-sum. And so from the standpoint of a zero-sum game, I need to win, you need to lose, there is nothing in between, meaning there is no draw in this contest. From the U.S. standpoint, we are getting hit with economic damage and everything else, but we're also basically using Ukraine as a weapon to go after what we consider to be an enemy. China is basically friends with both Ukraine and with Russia. And so it's in this kind of weird position where it's dancing between the raindrops between the two, not trying to alienate either one. So from their perspective, are they still playing a role in peace talks? I mean, it seems like the peace talks are taking place in Turkey at this point. But is there pressure coming from China for the standpoint of a ceasefire? Or is China just basically, look, we're, we're out of it. Russia is our ally, even though we don't necessarily say it aloud. We're closer than allies. We're going to be in it through thick and thin. Is that what's going on here? Where China is basically trying to, let's say, pressure to bring this into some level of normality. You know, I think the Chinese are engaged in behind-the-scenes negotiation and facilitation. Uh, You know, a a good part of diplomacy is discretion and knowing when to make your, you know, position public and when to keep it uh, quiet. And I think they're putting quiet pressure on the Russians to negotiate to come to the table. Uh, Certainly, you know, they were taken aback when uh, Russia invaded. And since then, you know, they have been, I think, instrumental in getting Russia to the peace table for, um, you know, to the table for peace negotiation. But yes, it is a difficult and weird position for China. Uh, And, you know, once again, the Chinese believe that it's possible to have win-win cooperation. You don't have to have a zero-sum game. Everybody can win. You can trade. You can uh, work to develop each other. You can, you know, support uh, each other 
uh, without being at war, without being at each other's throats. That's what China would like to see. This is why, you know, it's engaging with uh, Gulf states, engaging with Southeast Asia. He's about Belt and Road Initiative, basically. Like, basically tying Europe together with the Middle East. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, so basically time to move out. The Belt and Road Initiative, I, I want to get into that for a moment. Uh, the win-win situation, I'm curious, what does a world look like under China's leadership? Let's say the U.S. doesn't necessarily, for whatever reason, loses its hegemonic position in the world. We're no longer the world policeman. And China is the economic, let's say, dominant factor in the world. What does that look like? Because from the U.S. perspective, that's existential, meaning... We don't tolerate this notion of an upstart. And look, this is one of, what is it called? The Louisiana Gap, I believe it's called, um, where you have a smaller power or a power up and coming um, going against another power that's basically established. And those two things clash as the dominant power tries to retain this position from the smaller power that is basically trying to take it. I mean, this goes to Austria-Hungarian Empire in Serbia, where they wanted to teach Serbia a lesson. They basically start a war and everybody else gets involved with all of these kind of contracts um, of alliances. So from the standpoint of China, is that the world? Meaning, in the way that the U.S. is running this world, what would that look like if China was the hegemon? And I know you don't know that as a flat fact. I'm just kind of getting your take on it. The first thing is I don't think China aspires to be, quote, unquote, the uh, the world hegemon. Uh, You know, it aspires to uphold the U.N. charter that sees countries as equals. And this is something that has been, you know, written or slowly created in an international law since the Treaty of Westphalia uh, in the 1600s. And so, you know, let's imagine a world where countries are equal. They believe in equal sovereignty, where interference in other countries is not permitted and technically it's not permitted right now, but, you know, where that is actually reinforced, where each country gets to develop uh, rather than to be exploited and to be used and to be expropriated, but where each country gets to develop and not simply develop, but to develop on its own terms. You know, for hundreds of years, the whole notion of development was understood to be uh, to become more and more westernized and to become more and more capitalist. But China has broken that mold and shows that you can develop on your own terms without necessarily becoming more western or without becoming more capitalist, not extreme capitalist, not neoliberal capitalist. They've shown that that's possible. So I think that, uh, you know, a, a world where China is a counterbalancing force in the world would allow uh, trade and development in a mutual win-win fashion, and we would be probably uh, have a greater amount of peace, certainly because there would be a lot less, much less interference with a country's sovereignty and territorial integrity. I have one question. I want to pivot back kind of to um, just the markets and the ruble and all that stuff. Um, there's some news coming out. As we know, China um, is having some massive COVID lockdowns right now. And coming out of CNN Business, it's saying that China's banks and investment firms are calling on essential staff to live at the office this week to avoid any trading disruption during Shanghai's massive COVID (laughs) lockdown. Um, It says a person familiar with the matter told CNN Business that traders and fund managers were being offered between 500 and 2,000 yuan per night to camp out at work. Um, Some companies placing folding beds under workers' desks. But all of this kind of 
uh, grappling on COVID and seeing what's going to happen. Then, you know, you had George Soros coming out about a week ago saying that, you know, China is going to be facing this economic crisis. Do you think with this with this rise in COVID right now and with these lockdowns that this kind of puts China at a stalemate with with the ruble rising with, you know, the U.S., you know, trying it's, it's going to fight, try to fight this off. Um, but do you think China will be kind of at a stalemate, especially with these COVID lockdowns right now to where they they can't do anything or their hands are tied? Yeah, it remains to be seen, but it's so uh, it's so early. But China has done very, very well with its lockdowns. The West, you know, decries them as you know authoritarian and beyond the pale. But actually, they've been very, very effective, and they're implementing what they refer to as dynamic zero COVID, which means they're a little bit more flexible, and they're you know using programs like this, you know, this kind of incentive to stay at work. They've already been doing this. Generally, what they do is you know you don't go home, you don't go to your neighborhood, you get to stay in a hotel. But this sounds a little bit, uh, you know, even more, you know, kind of isolating. But yes, you know, uh, if they do a lockdown, they make sure that people have food, uh, people have, uh, you know, their necessities, that they're not necessarily seeing some kind of economic harm because of that. They're putting, you know, resources behind that. And that allows these types of public health measures to work. And, you know, let it be said that to this day, to this moment, the only thing that has been shown really to work, despite what you might hear in the Western mainstream media, is public health measures, test, track, trace, isolate. These are methods that we've known for, you know, at least 500 years. Uh, this is what works. China has been showing that you can implement these practices on a large scale without harming people. You inconvenience them a little bit, but you don't harm people. And over the long term, you create more freedom and better economic development, which is why China is ahead of the pack, uh, ahead of everybody else in terms of its economic development. So I would say anybody who's betting against China, you know, is, you know, is making the wrong bet. The last thing I'll, I'll say is that, you know, China, you know, is has always been a kind of an economic innovator uh, in in terms of its, uh, you know, economic practices. You know, it really kind of had the first sustainable type of, uh, you know, agrarian-based capitalism in the world. It, you know, it did that for at least a thousand years. And it also had the first paper cash. It had the first paper money. It literally invented paper money. And currently, China is the first cashless society. Nowhere uh, in China do you need actually to use cash anyway, anywhere. And they're currently, uh, you know, far ahead of the curve in terms of developing a central bank, uh, you know, uh, controlled digital currency. So they're far ahead of uh, the rest of the world in digital currencies. They're innovators in economic systems. And I think that the, both uh, the COVID situation and the sanctions and, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, dollar-based bullying is simply pushing China to develop its economic system, especially its uh, financial uh, means of, uh, you know, negotiation uh, even faster. And I think over the long term, China will still come out ahead. Yeah, because it seems like China is creating its own currency. I mean, there's even talk about China working with Saudi Arabia. And that's 
somewhat mind-blowing, right? I mean, all of the, this money for security or the oil for security that the United States had with um, that country for so many years. And now China has been dumping a massive amount of money, billions of dollars, into Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia has responded with the trial balloon of, hey, maybe we need the petrol yuan. Maybe we need the petrol yuan. And, of course, this immediately goes after the dollar, right? I mean, if, if it's one of those things where you have two currencies that are basically backed by oil, and one of those currencies is the dollar, one of those currencies is the yuan, and you get other countries that are considered, quote-unquote, pariah nations by NATO and the United States, and you're going to get nations that just don't want to be under the thumb where the U.S. can basically use economic warfare in order to undermine their country. Whether you're talking about Venezuela, you might be talking about Pakistan, you might be talking about um, countries in South America that the U.S. don't necessarily like, countries in the Middle East that the U.S. don't necessarily like. Meaning, you may get a large part of the globe that jumps on to a particular system that China creates in order to avoid what people saw the U.S. using the dollar for. How likely is that? Is that something that China is basically working on now? And are they looking for a change in the reserve currency or are they looking for a change in the world markets in regards to how the dollar is basically used as a weapon? What's going on? Well, I think, I think the Chinese are very aware that the U.S. is weaponizing its control of the uh, financial system, in particular, you know, the dollar as a reserve currency. And I think not only China, but as you point out, every country in the world is aware that any time that it trades in dollars and any time it buys, uh, puts its reserves uh, into dollars, that it is at risk of having that money taken away from it, uh, you know, at, on a whim. I mean, the U.S. has created incredible insecurity by, you know, freezing uh, uh, Russia's assets. And so to that extent, yes, the Gulf states are thinking about the petro yuan, uh, which will create a drift away from the petrodollar. You know, as we know, the petrodollar is what was implemented when the dollar drifted away from the gold standard. And is, it is what allows the United States to have this unlimited credit card to spend, that it can wage wars and live far beyond its means because there is a demand for dollars. The U.S. can export dollars uh, instead of exporting goods. It can export export credit to other countries. That paradigm is shifting because of, um, you know, for lack of a better word, because of hubris. And China and many other countries uh, are slowly but surely facilitating this process. I believe, uh, you know, that this uh, process is, is, is one way now. It's not going to be dialed back. The dollar is still uh, you know, the reserve currency, probably 60% of global transactions, but it's continuing to be chipped away. And as it does that, as I said, you know, once your credit card is taken away, then the hard reckoning comes. You realize that you actually have to earn your keep. And the rentier economy of the West, especially of the, you know, the global elite who just sit back and expect uh, to be able to collect rent from the rest of the world, that day is going away. It also makes things very dangerous because they're extremely wedded to their privilege and to their capacity, you know, like, you know, feudal barons, what have you, to continue to collect from the rest of the world. And now that the global south is saying, you know, this is not how it's going to be, uh, we can see that China is building a new center of gravity where we don't have to do this. Uh, I think that, you know, um, uh, you know, 
the dice is still up in the air, but when it comes down, it will not be, uh, you know, a happy turnout. I want to get into this notion of the cashless society that you mentioned. Um, one of the um, gentlemen in, in the chat, and yes, I do pay attention to the chat, so, you know, there's that. Um, but Joshua Brown, he made the point about um, a cashless society sounds scary as F. And I have to agree with him. I mean, when we were in Canada, not me, but our producers were sent there. They were talking about how people who would put money um, to some of the truckers will have their account shuts down. Now, even if your account is shut down, you can still use basically dollars to get from point A to point B, even though it's inconvenient. If the society is getting to the point where it's cashless and they can eliminate you from Twitter, eliminate you from Facebook, are people concerned that the same force or, let's say, powers will be used in a financial sense in the country itself? Meaning, having cash to be entirely digital creates a level of control that is monstrous in regards to the state's ability to control and maintain power. That's, has, China has a different culture, which is, which is, from an American context, some of this stuff is scary, if I'm being honest. So, like, for example, the COVID lockdowns. I don't think we would have tolerated in this country locking down to the degree that you guys were locking down, even to the point of saying people staying at work. Is some of this stuff just cultural? And it's this, this kind of the communist versus capitalist mentality that is basically seeping down into like the very fiber, the very atoms of the people where they accept certain things in one context, but don't accept them in the next. That's kind of what I'm getting at, I guess, with this question. It's just really interesting that the society itself is okay with this. What's going on in the society? How do they think about this type of stuff? Either the cashless society or the lockdowns where they're in their homes or being locked down at work. Does the society basically accept this? and trust the government to enact it? Yes, I think, the, uh, you know, certainly we see, you know, massive voluntary compliance by the Chinese. And I don't think it's a matter of culture. I think culture is a little bit of a red herring here. Um, I think the Chinese government did a really, really good job of messaging public health. 90% of public health is messaging. And the messaging was around the science. You know, they said, look, you know, the science shows, you know, these are the facts, you know, this is what's happening. And the science also shows that this is what we need to do. And then they told the Chinese in very specific terms, we are going to curtail your freedom temporarily so that you can have more freedom, real freedom later. And the Chinese bought that message. I think it's accurate. It's real. Uh, you know, there's certain cities they were shut down or locked down for a week or two or three, sometimes four. The government made sure that they had, for the most part, everything they needed so they could do that. You know, people who were, you know, day laborers found themselves, you know, staying in five-star hotels, you know, for a duration of weeks. You know, they were okay with that. They got their food delivered to them all the time. They didn't have to work. They were okay with that. And so, yes, I think that what the Chinese did was they did something that is good public health, good communication, good education. And I think if you really do want to bring in some kind of cultural dimension to it, I'd say it's the difference between a collective society, a collectivist society, and an individual society. In an individual society, you might see your personal freedoms as being, you know, paramount and you know, uh, more important than anything else. But in a collective society, you understand that freedom is an intersubjective relationship that we have to work together. It's a mutual working out of where our freedom begins and ends. 
And also you understand that freedom is not simply a negative proposition that is my freedom to do whatever I want to and be and to not be interfered with, but that it is a positive dimension, that it's freedom to do, freedom to be, freedom to have the capacity to do things. So we're talking about economic, social, and, uh, you know, uh, the economic and social rights that that allow us uh, to actually be human. It's not some kind of abstract notion which the West likes to throw out. You know, the Western notion of freedom is really the freedom of those who already have power and wealth. You know, and it comes out of an aristocratic rebellion against the sovereign. But uh, from a more socialistic uh, viewpoint, freedom is first you build out human beings' capacity. You make sure that they have food, that they have housing, that they have education, that they have the fundamentals with which to live a dignified human life. And then from that point forward, you negotiate and uh, work out what it means to have uh, freedom in an intersubjective and mutual fashion. God, I love that statement. Baron. I, I want to I want to move now to the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. He has arrived in China on his first visit to the country since Moscow began its invasion of Ukraine last month. Lavrov, it says, will take part in two multinational meetings on Afghanistan, along with representatives from Pakistan, Iran, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. Now, it says the Russian um, foreign minister will also attend a separate meeting of the extended Troika with with special envoys um, on Afghanistan from China and the United States. Now, um, Foreign Minister Wang Yi will represent China, and Taliban-appointed Foreign Minister Amir Khan Mutaki will represent Afghanistan. Um, Qatar and Indonesia will also be guests. Now, China has not recognized Afghanistan's Taliban government, but has refrained from the harsh criticism made by U.S. and others. It's kept its Kabul embassy open. It also is not committed on the Taliban's move to limit girls' education and other human rights abuses. However, the United States left Afghanistan in a complete cluster. And with China moving in and fixing the situation, the United States, obviously, again, with the ruble down, you have the Ukraine-Russia crisis, you have crisis here at home, and now you're having China show up the United States. And China has been doing this this whole thing, you know, where the United States goes in and carpet bombs it to the Stone Age. And China's like, hey, we'll help you out here. Um, with a move like this and with these talks coming forward today, again, with Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, what do you make of all this and the timing of it all? Well, uh, you know, the timing of it all, you know, is probably related uh, to, you know, the, the, the imminent need that Afghan has. You know, what they want to do is they want uh, Afghanistan to be peacefully rebuilt and to become uh, stable and peaceful and, you know, uh, developed. Remember, uh, China actually does share a border with Afghanistan. It's a tiny little strip, but it actually does have uh, a physical border with Afghanistan. China's interest is to help its neighbors become more stable. And remember, Afghan has been a source of, you know, uh, jihadi destabilization in China, uh, you know, through the Xinjiang region. So it wants Afghanistan to develop. It wants Afghanistan to have 
good relations with other countries. And uh, China also sees it as an opportunity. It's just more of its kind of win-win cooperation, economic development. Uh, and it uh, also understands that, you know, you don't get very far in diplomacy if you start out with a criticism. You know, if you want a country to develop and if you want women's rights to develop, remember, Afga- Afghanistan was really quite good on women's rights until the U.S., uh, you know, took down the Soviet uh, Union, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the regime that had good relations with the Soviet Union. Women were doctors, lawyers, engineers. They used to wear skirts. I mean, there are pictures of Afghan women wearing skirts. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a gentleman in um, Poland, uh, not Poland, in uh, Portugal. And his response was, oh, the Middle East has always been like that. And it's like, dude, no, not so much. Iran wasn't that way. Afghanistan wasn't that way. They're that way now. We radicalized them in order to basically um, screw over the Russians into their own Vietnam. Um, but Kaji, we have a question for you from one of the members in the audience. We have Malik. He's from D.C. Malik, what's going on, my morning, man? Malik. How you doing this morning? Hey, how you doing there, uh, fellas? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's Malik. Malik. Yeah. I have a friend of mine named, I have a friend of mine, it's spelled the same way, but I have a friend of mine named Carol Malik. But I'm sorry, Malik. Um, please. What's up? And I would admit that I, I, I started uh, listening to the interview and, and I did uh, tune back in a few minutes ago and caught kind of the tail end of your guests uh, discussing, uh, you know, kind of touching on the, the lockdowns and, and the uh, uh, Americans' uh, kind of uh, selfishness around uh, uh, individual freedoms and, and so forth as opposed to uh, Chinese culture. And, and, and listen, this is, you know, this is not a personal thing. This is, this is a political uh, criticism. I, I think on the, and I, and I don't know exactly what your, your, your guess uh, political uh, bit uh, is, but I will say that uh, COVID and the lockdowns uh, revealed on the left amongst progressives and bourgeois liberals alike, uh, this, um, you know, this, uh, this, this love, this secret, uh, I, I don't know, not so secret love of authoritarianism, you know, and uh, everyone knows, and I, I won't say everyone knows, but there's a, there's a saying in China. And, 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 and here's the thing, I, I grew up in New York City loving Chinese culture, but politically, I, you know, and also I've, I was brought into political activism by Panthers and studied Maoism, uh, but recently I, I've, I've had to take, you know, I've had to take a clearer look at Chinese society, and, and there is a saying within Chinese society, society that the nail that stands out is the first to get hit. Um, so there is a, a authoritarian, if not totalitarian, um, you know, theme within Chinese culture, and more so uh, in in recent times. And to ask us, um, those of us over here in America, whether we consider ourselves to be uh, quote unquote Americans or not, to somehow be excited by this, you know, this, you know, because, uh, you know, on occasion there will, there will come a crisis and you will have to, um, you know, we will have to circumvent, uh, you know, uh, political freedoms and social freedoms. And it's for your, it's for your good, especially considering that we just discussed how corrupt our government here, our ruling class here is, you know, why should we trust them? Why should I trust the, the political criminals with, with my freedoms? Because they say this is the crisis of all crises. KJ, answer that for me. I mean, he has a point, right? 
China has somewhat of an authoritarian government. And if I get this notion of freedom, but is it really freedom if you're in a context that basically doesn't entirely allow freedom? Thank you, Malik, for the question. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Malik. KJ, what's your thoughts? Well, you know, I think Malik has a really good point. And it's true, you know, because of COVID, uh, many uh, societies, including our own, are reverting to very, very naked authoritarianism. You can see that. And you see that, for example, in the way that social media is controlled. Now, I actually would disagree that China is, quote, unquote, authoritarian. It has a different political system. It is not pivoted or focused on individual freedoms, but it understands, as I said, and I, you know, I'm not saying this as some kind of empty formula. I'm saying that it understands freedom in an intersubjective fashion. That is, you build out the material basis for real freedom, and that involves, you know, making sure that people have the economic, social, cultural rights, and then you look for, quote unquote, the political rights, the negative freedoms. Um, That said, you know, this notion that, you know, if you stand out, you're going to get hammered. You know, that uh, that proverb is actually Japanese. You know, nail that stands out gets hammered down. And I, I think that we need to be careful. I think we need to make a distinction between uh, different Asian societies. The Chinese uh, proverb around nails is that you do not use good iron to make nails. Uh, and you do not use a good human to wage war. Hey, Jay, we're going to have to end this, but I love the way you talk, and I love the way your mind works. And I totally get your point about this kind of differences and everything else, and I would love to get you in just to even talk about the Chinese political system one day because it is fascinating. Um, but, KJ No, um, thank you for joining us. He's a journalist, political analyst, writer, teacher, specializing in the geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific region. He's a contributor to the book, Capitalism on a Ventilator, Once Censored by Amazon. It is available at iacenter.org. And Franzak has news. We have uh, some breaking news for you. Thank you to Richie in the chat. Ukraine has stated that it's ready to implement the demands that Russia has been insisting on for years, Russia's top negotiator claims. Russia's lead negotiator, Vladimir Medinsky, said Wednesday that Ukraine agreed in principle to officially become a neutral country. This said Wednesday after the peace summit in Istanbul, Turkey. Again, as of this hour, Ukraine officially saying they want to be a NATO country coming out of these peace talks. So we're going to keep you updated, folks. Thank you so much for listening. People who win wars, don't do that. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak, I want to thank our engineer. I want to thank our producer. And I want to thank all of you for listening. Blackjack, Lath, we see you. We hear you. Absolutely. (laughs) Fault Lines. See you guys tomorrow. You guys have a phenomenal day. And may the good news be yours. Lines.